This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. for the before. to give uh, to Laser Shiner for setting up such a, a mockum, a place. It's full of Teira, Avaida, Nilskasadim, all in one place, open, accessible to everybody. Also, a car's type to turn any time to uh, to what they do, to Shimon and Ruben Klyakov, together with uh, Mayor Summers and uh, David Pine, enabling Klyasol to, to have Teira around the clock, around the world. It's amazing what they do. They deserve our tremendous. And, and support. A few weeks ago, like uh, unfortunately every year, I get a call from Nachum Shiner. We're going to do a Tishavav Kinnis this year if Chastor Shalom Shiach doesn't come. And when I get that phone call, I start preparing. This year, a few weeks before that, an acquaintance of mine called me up about something not related to anything uh, Tishavav related. But as he started his conversation, he said, you know, I, I come to your uh, Tishbov Kinnis. I said, oh, thank you very much. It looks like it didn't work. He says, what do you mean it didn't work? I said, well, Mashiach's not here. So the whole purpose of the Kinnis is not just to pass time. It's to bring Mashiach. It looks like it didn't work. So he said, no, you're wrong. I said, I'd love to be wrong. Tell me why. So this particular person, he learned in our Sameach for many years. And he said one time, it was after Mincha, and the Roshiva of Shore walked over to someone else, another, he was a younger man at the time, but someone who was in our Sameach for a few years. And he walked over to me and said, I want you to know, because of your Mincha, it could be the way you're davening, Mashiach's not coming. And the fellow turned white. He says, Rabbi, I, I work so hard on my davening. What, what's wrong? Tell me, I'll, I'll improve, I'll do better. And Ashur said, no, no, I was watching you daven mincha. Halavaya would daven a mincha like you. The Rebbein gets such pleasure from such a mincha. He doesn't want to change things. Maybe your mincha is what keeps your Mashiach from coming. And of course, that doesn't mean that we don't want Mashiach to come, Chas Hashem. That's not our cheshben. Our cheshben is to do what we have to do. So talking next year, we don't sit over here. Because Chazal told us to wait and to anticipate and to look forward and do what we can do to bring Mashiach and to have the Shekhinah among us. So what are we supposed to do to make sure that we're not here again next year? They say that the Rebbe Melch was once walking with Talmidim, with Ramesh Leib Sasavar and Rav Mishra Heshel, and it was on Shivas Thomas, and it was a very, very hot day. And as they were walking, it was just so unbearably hot, and it got to a point where it was a little dangerous. So there was a stream nearby, and they asked the Rebbe, could they go and wash themselves off a little? And he said, yeah, go. I'm going to wait here for you. And he sat down. There was a stone there, and he sat down. They washed themselves off. They came back, and they saw that the Rebbe Ramayach was, was in a trance. So I thought maybe he wasn't okay. They went over to tapped him on the shoulder. Rebbe, you okay? And he looks up. He says, yeah, I'm okay. 
He says, what, what, what's going on? He says, well, you're washing yourself. I, I took a little trip to Shemayim. And I want to tell you that what happened is there was a young lady and she was fasting and she didn't feel well. So she asked the Rav, what should I do? Should I continue fasting? And the Rav says, how do you feel? She goes, I feel pretty weak. He says, well, could you continue? She goes, I probably could continue. He says, look, if you have to break your fast, break it. But if you could continue, then continue. So she continued. And unfortunately, a while later, she passed away. She was Nifter. She came up to Shemayim. Okay, come up to Shemayim. There's a, there's a Din Taira. And we're about to start the Din Taira. She says, one second, before you judge me, I also have a Taina. I want to bring the Anshayi Knesset to Din Taira. So, uh, no, no, we're judging you now. This, uh, no, no. Why? What's the Taina? How could you go and make such a long Tainus in the summer, hot summer day? Look what it does to people. I died because of it. How could you make such a tainus? Okay. They brought the Anshik Nesakdaila. They brought the peasant. They said, No, you hear a tainus. How could you make such a tainus, such a long tainus on such a hot summer day? And they said, The truth is, when we made this tainus, we never dreamt it would be for so long. We thought it would be a little, maybe 52 years, 70 years, 120 years. We never dreamt that this tainus would be in place for so long. And that was their answer. And the question is, how much longer will it go? Even Chazal didn't think it would go for so long. But here we are, on Tishabah, sitting on the floor, wondering how long this can go on for. Who thought this year we would say Tishabah, Tavshin, Pe'alef? We thought this past year would be it. So what is it? If we figure out why we're here, maybe we can get out of it. We're going with, as the Shulchan Aruch says, It's better to say fewer of the kinnis with kavana and with feeling than to say, just say all of them but not really have that much kavana. So we know that on Tishabav, the Meraglim came back on Erev Tishabav and they gave over Dibas Ra, they gave over a bad report about Eretz Yisrael, and that night everybody went back to the tents and they were crying, what's going to be? It's so bad, even Hashem can't bring us into Eretz Yisrael. The Gemara tells us in Tainus, that night was Tishabav. You cried for nothing, I will give you something for all the generations to cry about. And every time I hear this, you wonder, it sounds like a spiteful parent. You're crying? You're crying? I'll give you something to cry about. And you whack the kid again. You cried for nothing, so we're going to have to keep on crying. What's the connection between the two? Rosham Shafal Hirsch explains that tears are the sweat of the soul, which means we all have emotions. We cry, we laugh, we're happy, we're sad, we're frightened. And we express it. But sometimes we reach a point where we can't express our emotions. And that's when the tears come out. A person can be sad, and he can be so sad, so frightened, he can't express it anymore, and he starts to cry. You can have a person who's so happy, he hears such great news, and he just can't contain it, he starts to cry. Because that's our inner emotion, and that's being expressed by our tears. 
Kersh Baruch said, when the Meraglim came back, and they said, it's impossible. If we're going to go in, it's not going to work. Even a Kersh Baruch can't go and win Eretz Yisrael for us. We're doomed, we're finished. At that point, it's true. There was no way that you can go and fight and win Eretz Yisrael. But at that point, is what the Kersh Baruch wanted you to do the right thing, which was to say, Kersh Baruch you told us to go fight, we're going to go fight. But you're going to have to do the war because there's no way we can do it. And those feelings should have been that a Baruch we did all the shtalas we can do and now you have to do it. And Baruch said you didn't use, instead you cried. You didn't use the tears properly. You didn't use the gift of tears properly. I'm going to give you the opportunity throughout the generations to rectify that. If you're in a situation where you're trying hard to do something and it doesn't work and you did all the shtalas you can do at that point, you have a choice. You have a decision to make. You can say, this is ridiculous, this is stupid, it's never going to work, forget it. Or you can say, the whole thing's is ishtalis anyways. I did all my ishtalis, I did everything that I can do. HaKadosh Baruch Hu, now you have to do the whole thing. And that is what HaKadosh Baruch Hu is waiting from us. And that is the power of tears that we are looking for. We know, Megagum Schus, and therefore bad things happen on Tesbav. We know the destruction of the first base of Mikdash, the second base of Mikdash. We know it was plowed over on Tishabav. The city of Beta was destroyed. And in, I guess, more modern history, we know that the Inquisition began on August 2nd, 1492. We know World War I, which was the harbinger of World War II, also began. 1914 on Tishabov. All these bad things happen on Tishabov. So what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to go get out one genuine tear. How are we supposed to do that? And then we think, and the question everybody asks every year, we're going to bring Mashiach? The previous generation didn't bring Mashiach. Many of us were around of Moshe Feinstein. He cried on Tishabov. He didn't bring Mashiach. We can go all the way back to the Vilna Gain, to the Baal Shem Tov. Rashi, Rashi sat on the floor and cried. Rashi didn't bring Mashiach. We're going to bring Mashiach. This is a teretz. The Mabit says a frightening teretz. The Mabit says, you think you're crying because of the base of English? He says, you're crying now to save yourself from the Chevli Mashiach. Yeah, Mashiach, he's right, he's almost here. There's going to be Chevli Mashiach. That's what you're crying for, to save yourself. But we know there's another teretz from the Chedush Eirim. And he says as follows, what it means to have to cry. There was a Talmud of Hassam Seifer, he used to see his, his Rebbe every year in Tishabov would go into a side room by the Suda Samasekis by himself. And no one was allowed in. And one year he wanted to know what's going on over there. See, so he hid in the room. And he watched as his Rebbe sat on the floor. And he dipped his bread into the ashes and he started to eat. And he started to cry. And he was crying and crying. And he collected those tears in a cup. And then he dipped the bread into those tears. To me kind words, I've eaten ashes like bread and mixed my drink with tears. And that's what he saw the Chassam Seifer do. Many years later, this Talmud had the schus of moving to Yisrael. And he found a hovel, which they called a house, that was right overlooking the Harabayas. In those days, the Turks did not allow people 
to go and to stand and just look at the Harbayas. You weren't, they didn't permit the Yidin to have balconies to look. But it was on Tishabov, and he said, the Erev Tishabov, he said, I'm going to do what my Rebbe did. And he sat down looking at the Harbayas, and he had his bread, he had his ashes, he had his egg, and he had his cup for the tears. And he sat there, and he waited for the tears, and he tried, and not one tear came out. He couldn't get one tear into the cup. And he thought to himself, how is it that my Rebbe, sitting in Europe, was able to fill up a cup of tears? And I can't even get one tear out sitting and looking at the Harabayas. And that's when the tears began. The tears were there not so much as realizing what we're missing, but the tears of realizing that he doesn't even realize what we're missing, even though he's sitting there looking at the Harabayas. It was a family hiding by the Nazis in 1941. Hiding in one of the last places they could find to hide, which was the sewer system. They're inside the sewer system. One of the places the Nazis didn't like to go down. But every once in a while they would drop down a few sticks of dynamite. At one time, there was a large group of people in the sewer system. And all of a sudden, some said, quiet, quiet, the Nazis are coming. They can hear them walking on top, and they have to be still silent. And it was very, very frightening. There was a young boy there, and his parents warned him very clearly, he must be quiet. But it was so frightening. But this little boy acted like a big boy, and he didn't cry. After about an hour or so, the Nazis moved on, and they were able to start breathing again. And now this little boy looks at his mother and says, Ma, are they gone? And she said, yes. He says, could I cry now? And she said, yes. And he started to cry. That boy had the ability to cry, but he wasn't permitted. We're permitted to cry. Do we have the ability? Do we recognize the situation that we're in? And with that explains the Sassamas, that we're going to bring Mashiach, because it's true, every genuine tear of a Yid, Hashem takes and He puts it away in a flask, in a jug, and we know the Tanayim, the Amarayim, they cried and they filled up the cup maybe three quarters. And then over the years, the Achrayim, the Tzadikim, they filled up the cup. And now they filled up the cup to the top. And we know a cup, even with the liquid, it could be heaping. And if you add one more tear, it overflows. That is what's expected of us. We're expected to cry one genuine tear. Because if we cry one genuine tear, that we're standing on the shoulders of giants before us, we can talk and bring Mashiach. Because all we need to do is that one tear, and that cup will overflow. And if we can't cry that one tear, then as we said before, says the Sassamas, then that's what that tear should be for. For the fact that we're not able to cry. The famous story they say by the Six Day War, when the soldiers ran into the base, to the Kaisal, and people were overwhelmed, and they were dabbing, they were crying, and they were two soldiers sitting in the back and they're watching. They're from Shemarat Seir. They weren't from, they, they didn't know anything about Yiddishkeit, unfortunately. And all of a sudden, one of them starts to cry and the fellow looks and says, what are you crying about? It's a wall. And the guy looks and says, look, all my fellow Jews are crying. I'm crying because I don't know what they're crying about. So if we can't cry for the basic English, we can at least cry because we don't know what it is that we're missing. And one last point before we begin the actual kinnis. 
A person may think, okay, so what? I'm going to cry a little tissue above 25 hours. The most important worry and issue I have in my mind is, why is the clock stuck? Why isn't the clock moving? I looked at my watch two minutes ago and it didn't change. I looked at my clock three hours ago, it's only two minutes later, I want to eat already. So I'm going to go and I'll cry for five minutes, what's the big deal? There's a big tzaddik who lives near Haifa, Kiryam Malachi, Rav Chaim Weintraub. Chaim Weintraub brought his three-year-old son to yeshiva for Zubsharen. It was a beautiful event. A few days later, his beautiful three-year-old child was in Gan. And he tells his mora, I don't feel good. So he lay down a little, but he wasn't feeling better. He was getting fever. They called his parents. Rav Chaim came, he brought his son home. He lay him down in bed, checked on him every few minutes, and at one point he checked on him, and he passed away. His little three-year-old died. He didn't know what to do. They buried him, they had the shiva. By the shiva, many people were coming. Rav Chaim Weintraub was involved in Kirov, trying to get people back to Yiddishkeit, specifically teenagers and young adults. And at one point, eight boys came in. They did not look for him at all, and they weren't. And they sat down, and Rechaim was very happy to see them. After a little while, they got up, they moved to the side, they had a little discussion. And then one of them came over to Rechaim Weintraub, and he whispered something to his ear, and Rechaim gave this big smile. And then each one came over to him, gave him a hug, and they left. So somebody was there and said, Rechaim, what, what's going on? What, what, what made you so happy? No one's smiling here. He says, they told me that in honor of my son, that this coming Shabbos, they're all going to keep Shabbos. They're not going to use their phones, they're not going to smoke, they won't drive, they won't turn on a light. This Shabbos they're going to keep in the schus for his son. It's amazing. I was so appreciative. So someone who was sitting there said, Rebchaim, you know, it's very nice. What they're basically telling you is that this Shabbos they're going to keep, but next Shabbos they're not. How is that a good thing? It's such a blatant, disgusting thing to tell you. We're not going to keep Shabbos next Shabbos, only this one. And Chaim says, what are you talking about? If somebody would come over to me and tell me, I have a way to get you your son back, just for 24 hours. You ready to pay? Of course. It's going to be a lot of money. I'll pay anything. I'll sell my house, sell all my assets, borrow money from everybody, to have my son back for 24 hours? To walk down the street holding his hand? To, to sit him on my lap and sing with him? I would give anything to have him back, even if it's for 24 hours. And Rechaim looked at them and said, how do you think Kajbar who feels to have eight of his children back, even if it's just for one Shabbos? We don't throw away the good because of the perfect. If we can sit here and cry one genuine tear that is so precious to the Rebbeinah Shalom, and not to say, well, I can't cry for 12 hours, I can't cry for two hours, Cry for one genuine tear. If throughout the whole day we can get one genuine tear out, that is so precious to the Rabbi Nishleilam. First kinna we're going to be saying is kinna vav. A lot of the kinnas in the beginning were written by Rav Elazar Kalir. He lived sometime, it's not so clear, between the 2nd and 7th century. He was the son, according to many, of Rav Shimon Bar Yechai. That's who wrote. Others say... Shusharashba says it was Rabbi ben Aroch. This first kin is based primarily on Megillus Eicha. And it starts off Shavas. 
everything came to a standstill. Which means there was a world before the Churban, and there was a world after the Churban. And it was not the same. It wasn't just the world, we don't have the base English. You hear people today, people live through the Holocaust, they said, there's life before and life after, it's not the same. Fadin Krieg, Nuchin Krieg, two different things, you, you can't compare the two. Suri Meni, Shemuni Oivrai. Everything came to a standstill. And those who sent us away, Kajbos says, get away from me. And they made me into garbage, into filth, among the rest of the nations. The kinna goes on, talking about, I wish I would still have the positive and uplifting nevuah of... Of the Navi, of Zechariah ben Zechariah ben Zerachia, how he used to speak positively of what's going to be. But then, as we say in the beginning of Eicha, Al Eilani Bechia, Eini Eini Yardumayim. Over these things I cry. And the Gemara asks, What are these things? What's the plural? What do you mean these things? I'm crying over the Churban. And it says many things. Number one, the shedding of the blood of Tzadikim for the destruction of the Beis Hamikdash for the loss of the kahuna and the malchus, for the cessation of lima and and all these things we are crying for. And the kinna continues, on the surface of the Euphrates River, the tzaddikim were mutilated. The matter says what happened was, Nebuchadnezzar was going down on his boat, and he sees people walking, he says, who are those? He says, those are the Jewish slaves. They're the Levian. They used to sing in the Beis Hamikdash. He said, "Oh, tell them to bring their instruments and play for me." And the Levian heard this. They said, "What to play our instruments to be playing the Beis Hamikdash for Nebuchadnezzar?" They went and they cut off their thumbs, so they shouldn't be able to play for Nebuchadnezzar. The kinnik continues, "Koyli I cried out for relief from the Arabs, but they crushed me. The Medrash tells us that we're being led through the land of the Ishmaelim and our Arab cousins came over to us and tried to be helpful and said, oh, you must be so hungry. Here's some bread. And we eagerly took the bread. We were starving. But the bread was made purposely very, very salty. So we became very thirsty. They said, oh, you're thirsty. Here's some water. And they gave us flax canteens full of water. And we opened it up and squeezed the water into our mouth. But alas, there was no water in it. It was just hot, stale air. And thousands and thousands of even died that way. The kidney continues, When we were traveling, it says, My captors fed me pebbles. What do you mean fed me pebbles? Who eats pebbles? And again, the Medrash tells us that the Nabi Yechaskel was warning them for years and years about the Khurban. And he tried to tell them, he goes, You better prepare for yourselves, Kalim vessels, utensils that you can take with you, that you can travel with you to make food because you're not going to have anything. And we didn't listen. And sure enough, we were sent out. We had no utensils to take with us. And we arrived at a place they let us eat, but we had nothing to, to make our food with. We dug holes in the ground. And we put in the flour, mixed it with water, but it mixed with pebbles that was in the ground. And that's what we ate. And that's what we actually had to eat, the pebbles. And the Kinnik finishes, concludes, Ram Habait No Amchokulanu, Zakhar Shemahe Alanu. Hashem, look at us. Remember that we are your nation. 
Don't forget about us. What happens if still somebody can't cry after going through these kinnis? We feel life's pretty good. Unfortunately, there are many tragedies, but we feel bad, and then we move on. You know, the story is someone sitting by the table eating, and he hears about this terrible tragedy. He goes, oi, that's terrible, that's terrible for those families. He passed the ketchup. It doesn't affect you so much directly, so you're sad. The more it affects you, you're a little, a little more sad. And then that's it. I want to read to you, he said it last year already, tremendous medrash in Eichar Abbasi, if you want to look it up, in Aleph of Aleph. Bilal Tishabov, it was the night of Tishabov. Nichnas Avramavinu lebeis Kaidash Hakadoshim. Avramavinu walked into the Kaidash Hakadoshim. Achazu Hakadosh Baruch Hu biyaday. Hashem saw him. See, he took Avramavinu in his hands. Bahavim mitayl by a ruchaisu kitzaris, and he was walking with Avramavinu up and down in the Kaidash Hakadoshim together with Avramavinu. Finally, Amar Lei Hakadosh Baruch Hu. What's my beloved doing in my house? Thanks for the visit. Can I help you with anything? Omar of Ramavinu says, Rebaini, my master. Bonai, my children. Heichenheim, where are they? What's going on? The basement is just quiet. There's no kabanas. My children aren't here. They're not seeing shiras. What's going on? Where are my children? Omar Alei, Kajbarho answers him. Chotu, they did a virus. They glisten bein umais. And I exiled them among the nations. Omar Were there no tzaddikim among my sons? Nobody is there to, to save them from being sent out? Omar Alei, says to him, They rejoiced over the downfall of one another. And another gear Hayasainim says uh, they hated one another. It's true. If there would have been Siddiqan, they wouldn't have been exiled. But they hated one another. They were happy by the downfall of one another, and therefore they were exiled. And Avram cried. If we can't cry because we're missing the Basimidash, because Avram Avinu cried, maybe there's one more Asa that can give us to cry. The Gemara Chagiga and Haman Base tells us that Hashem cry, Hashem has a room called the Mistarim. And in this room, Mistarim, his private room, Hashem cries. So Gemara says, what's he crying about? He's crying about that the greatness was taken away from his children and given to the Gayim. So Gemara says, really? How could he cry? There's only joy and happiness and splendor to God is Baruch How could you say he cries? And for the Gemara, in his inner chambers he cries. In his outer chambers he's happy. So Gemara asks, but we see he cries in his outer chambers as well. As it says in Yeshaya, Hashem tzavakais On that day Hashem cries and he mourns. Says the Gemara, of course, that's Tishabov. On Tishabov he cries publicly for his Beis HaMikdash. Ramesha Shapiro explains, people have different types of friends. You hear a good joke? You have a friend, he enjoys your jokes, you call him up. You did a good business deal? You have a friend who likes to hear that. Different people have different friends for different things. Somebody who is in a bad situation, he's in a tough situation, he has a friend that he calls and he can cry with that friend. Hakar's Borchu also has that. 
And on that day, Hashem says, come, cry with me. On that day, Hashem publicly cries, that one day Hashem publicly cries for the base Middash. On that day, Hashem says, cry with me. The well-known story of the Mira of Shir of Nasan Tzvi Zatzal. A Talmud once came to him, because his wife was very, very sick, and she was having a very delicate surgery. And he came to his Rebbe, like we all did, and said, Rebbe, daven for me. And Rebbe Nassim was just lying on the couch. He wasn't responding. He said, Rebbe, daven for my wife, it's dangerous. Rebbe he started to move his lips, so the fellow went and he put his ear close to Rebbe mouth, and Rebbe said, I have no kayak to daven. You say to Hillam, and I'll cry. And he said to Hillam, and Rebbe cried. We can cry for somebody else. So if we can't cry because we don't know what we're missing, we can at least cry because we know that Akash Baruch on this day is crying. The next kin will be saying is Kinni Yod Aleph. The Ukrainian Yemiyo al Yeshio, the Navi Yemiyo cries over the Melech Yeshio, over the King Yeshio. From all the kinnis, this is perhaps the most important one, besides from Miguel Secha, as this kin was written by Yemiyo al Navi himself. Yemiyo cries over the death of Yeshio. 
The king talks about how he cries over him. Why does he cry over the death of a king? There are many people who were killed. There are many kings who were killed. What's so special about the death of Yeshio? And that's because he was the last chance to stop the Hurban by Rishon. He was the last chance to stop the destruction of the first base of Mikdash. The Kinnah tells us that it was so important and, and, and tragic his death, how, how it almost stopped. And the Kinnah goes through that Menashe, who was Yeshua's grandfather, started to avoid the Zara. He did avoid the Zara so much, he put avoid the Zara everywhere. At the end of his life, he did Shuva, but it was too late. It was too ingrained, as the Kinnah tells us. It was just too ingrained in everybody. And then his son took over, his son Amin. But Amin also went full force with the Vaidazara. And he was just a very unpleasant, disgusting person, so much so that his own servants assassinated him just after two years. Which left his son, the grandson of Yeshio, to become king of Menashe, and that was Yeshio. As the Kinnah tells us, Ben Shemayin Hashanah, he became king at eight years old. At eight years old, he became king. Grew up in a house of a father and a grandfather who were steeped in the Vaidazara. And he didn't know anything. Eight years into his kingdom, he started to search out Hashem. The Mishra tells us what happened was that Chilkiah, the Kain Gadol at the time, was cleaning up and making renovations to the base of Mikdash, and he found the Sefer Torah. Most of the Sefer Torah were destroyed, and he found the Sefer Torah. And he opens up the Sefer Torah, and it's opened up to Ndvarim Perachov Ches Pasulam Advav, Or Asher LaYakum As Divrei Torah Zayis Lasis Zaysam. Cursed is he who does not fulfill the words of this Torah. And he took it and he ran to the king to Yeshio, who was 16 years old at the time, and he shows it to him. I'm sorry, he was 25 years old at the time, and he shows it to him. Yeshua was so moved by this, he said, we have to go, we have to fix this. And he put on a program and a campaign to eradicate Avaidazara from everywhere. And he was highly successful getting rid of Avaidazara in Klai Yisrael. The kid tells us the tragedy of what happened. He became so great, Yeshio, it says he became as great as Moshe Rabbeinu, as a Vigdar. That's how great he was, eradicating a Vaidazara. Unfortunately, Davag Baychet Litzani Hadar. It was still impossible to eradicate a Vaidazara. What he didn't realize was, Ashikomu Acharadelas Lizdar. They took their doors, their double doors, and they put their Vaidazara in it and they sliced it in half. So when the door was open, you couldn't tell. And when the army would come to search out if there's any Avedazar in the house, they wouldn't see any. And after they would leave, the doors would close, and they would have the Avedazar again. And Yeshio did not know that people still had Avedazar. What happened was, Sakina tells us, Pari Nechai sent a message to Yeshio. He says, I'm going having a war, but I'm not fighting you. I'm fighting a different country. I just need to pass through your country. And Yeshio said, no, you can't come. Because we are doing so well, the Pasuk says, 
If you're doing the right thing, even a sword won't pass, pass through your country. Forget about that war. And therefore, I'm not letting you come. So he says, listen here, I really just want to pass through, let me through. I won't, Yeshua refused. He, he didn't know, however, that there was a Vedazar hidden behind the door. And again he tells him, why do we have to do battle today? Why do we have to fight? Let me just go through. He said, no. Yeshua was warned. And the Navi comes and tells him, "Don't let them. Uh, you have to let them through. You don't realize. You don't realize how bad it is. And Chilkiah said, you have to let them through. And he said, no, I'm not letting them through. But he went to a different Navi. He went to Chulda Hanaviyah. And he asked her, because we know the rule. If you go to one Rav, he doesn't give you the good answer. You go to the other Rav. And you go to the other one, you'll find one. And then eventually you'll get your answer. And even though the Navi told him to let him through, the Jews are not as good as you think they are. Chulda Hanaviyah said, no, we are good, don't let them through. Pari came, and they fought. And then he told his people to aim their their arrows at him, at Yeshio. And it says he was hit with 300 arrows. And he was lying there like a sieve. 300 arrows pierced him. But right before he died, his last breath from his mouth, Sadiku Hashem, Hashem is the Tzadik, I have disobeyed Hashem. I have disobeyed Hashem, and that's why this is all happening. But because of those last words, ends the kinah, tala Because of those those words, twenty two years were added on to the Bais Rishon, and therefore it was postponed for twenty two years. But after those twenty two years, the base Minish was destroyed, and that's what this kinah is so important to realize that if we don't go listen to what the Navi tells us. We don't listen to the, what the Rav tells us. You see what can happen. And it's also a kind of realizing lost opportunity. People only realize things later, unfortunately. And that's why Yermio was crying. Because it could have been saved. How many times do we go through life and we perhaps have opportunities for things and we don't use them? A Bokhra once came to his Kalana Rebbe. He says, Rebbe, I'm having a big problem. He says, what's the problem? He says, I'm having a fight with the Eitzahara, but the Eitzahara is winning. He's putting these thoughts in my mind, and I'm not so quick to get rid of them. What should I do? So Sklenar Rebbe said, every day in davening, the fourth Halukah, we say, The righteous will exalt in glory, and they will sing joyously on their beds. Ask the Sklenar Rebbe, you're not supposed to daven while you're lying down. These are tzaddikim, these are the righteous people, and they're davening while they're lying down. Explain this, Klan Rebbe, obviously these people are on their deathbed. They're sick, they're ill, they can't get up, and they're davening, they're singing to Hashem. He looks at the boy and says, Bacharul, you should know. You should live long and be well, but at the end, we're all going to be lying on a bed. And the end's going to be imminent. And if you lived your life and you made the proper decisions, you'll be happy. You'll be anticipating meeting a Kaddish Baruch Hu. But if Chas Hashem, you didn't make the right decisions, oh, will you be frightened. If you want to go make those correct decisions now, think about what's going to be those last moments. There was a elderly lady who lived in Ashdod. And this lady had a crank. She had an issue. Like all of us have issues. 
He said, when it's by us, it's fine. But it's the next guy who, who always sniffles, and the next guy who always says, you know it, then they're every word. And the next guy who always does this. And we wonder, why do people do all these things? But each one has their own. She also had something. This lady would look in bags. Anytime she would see a bag, she would look in the bag. You're standing by a stop, by a bus stop, and you're holding a bag. She'd come over and take a look in your bag. What are you looking for? Nothing, sorry. Wherever she was, she would look in your bag. One day, this elderly lady gets invited to a chasna of another elderly lady in her building. Her granddaughter's getting married. She's so excited. She goes to the chasna. She goes to the chasna. By the kabbal's ponim, there's the, the kala with her mother and mother-in-law and the grandparents. They're all sitting there. And some people have bags. So, this lady goes over. She wishes mazel tov. And then she starts to look through the bags. So, her friend who knew her, okay, she looks through her bag. Then she starts looking through the bag of the Machatanister. And she starts to look through the bag. And she looks, she says, What are you doing? Oh, nothing. I'm just looking through your bag. You're looking through my bag? That's where all the, the jewelry is? No. And she says, You Ganif, you're trying to steal the jewelry. And she starts screaming at her, You Ganif. And the place was an uproar. And they kicked her out. She was a Ganif, they kicked her out. She comes home. She calls up her two kids. And she says, Why don't you come visit me now? He says, Ma, is everything okay? Everything's fine, just, just come visit me now. He calls his brother, he says, we better go over to mother now. They get into the car, they rush over, they come inside, and there's their mother sitting on the couch crying. He says, Ma, is everything okay? Yeah, everything's fine. You call us over, you're crying, what, what's going on? He says, you know, so-and-so's making a chasna tonight? He says, yeah. He says, well, I was by the chasna, I was kicked out. Ma, <laughs> what do you mean you were kicked out? Well, what did you do already? He says, they said I'm a Ganif. What? You're a Ga- What does that mean? He says, Well, you know, I was doing what I always do, I was looking through the bags. And this lady said I'm a Ganif. Okay, Ma, we'll 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 speak to them, we'll take care of it. Don't worry about it. Okay, thank you so much. And then one of the kids says, You know, Ma, why do you look through the bags? You look through the bag why do you do that? Our whole life we see you looking through bags. And she says, I never told you? She says, No, you never told. Okay, let me tell you. I'll tell you now. Many years ago, shortly after I got married, in May of 1943, just a few months after we were married, we were taken to the ghetto. We were taken to the ghetto. And we were there. And after a few weeks, one time I saw my my husband passing by in front and somehow he met up with some of the Nazis there and something happened and they went and they just shot him in his head and he fell down and they walked away people ran over but he, he was he was dead we buried him in the Lodge ghetto at that point I was already a few months pregnant a few months later I had a child I named him Yisrael I named him Strulik after your father after his father and then just a few weeks after that my area in the ghetto was called that we had to report to the trains right away so I quickly went into the house I took a bag I put some stuff inside I put some silver maybe I can sell later I put some food some clothing and then I took my strolik I don't know I, I took a bag and I put him in the bag and I took both bags and I ran to the trains 
and I'm running and I'm running. Everyone had to get there quickly. We get there, and the place was a commotion. People were screaming and yelling. There were dogs barking, and I'm going on the train with two bags, and a Nazi comes over and says, no, 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 one bag. Not two bags, one bag. So I have to take both bags. One bag. So I had no choice. What am I going to do? I put down the bag with all my stuff. I take my strolling. And I go on the train. And places are pushing and pushing. And I made, my, I made my way to the corner of the train. And I tried to protect my son. And it was pushing and screaming and yelling. The doors closed and the train moved on. After about a half hour, the crying got a little less. And I took the opportunity to try to make some space to look inside and see how my strolling is doing. I bend down, I open up the bag. It was the wrong bag. I left my strolik on the train platform, in the cold weather in the train platform. I started screaming and yelling, turn the train around, I have to go back. And everyone looked at me, it's okay, it's okay. I said, it's not okay, my son. There was no turning back. Went to Auschwitz. As she says, I was one of the unfortunate ones who lived knowing that I killed my child. My child, I left him on the platform. What did I need all the silver for and this clothing and food? After the war was over, I ran back to Lodge to see if I could find anything. Of course, I didn't find anything. I made my way to Eretz Yisrael. I got married. Then I had a child. And as soon as I was holding that child again in my arm, that once again reminded me of my strolik. I said, maybe, just maybe, I can still find him. And I started looking in bags again for him. And even though I know in the back of my mind that I'm never going to find him, but that's what I do. And for years and years and years, I look in a bag. Maybe, maybe I can find my strolik. And that's the story she told them. And later on, her son said over the story, and he said, we all go through life that way. We have two bags. A bags of things that we want, and a bag of things that we need. And we fill up both bags with our needs and our wants, and we go through life holding both bags. But ultimately, we reach a point in our life where we can't carry both bags. Something happens, we can't hold on to both, and we have to put one down. We're all careful to make sure to put down the correct bag. How sad it is later on to find out that instead of putting down the bag of wants, we put down the bag of needs. And then we spend a whole life searching for that bag. And that's what the skin is telling us. Make sure you live your life now so you don't have those regrets later.
Next kid will be saying, Zion. Remember what Titus did inside Remember what Titus did as he came into the base of Mikdash, took out his sword, and he entered. And he stabbed the Parechus, and blood came out. Both the first base of English and the second base of English have in common that the Shekhinah left it and then it was destroyed. Not that they destroyed something that the Shekhinah was there, but they destroyed just a, a building of a building of stones. In fact, it tells us when Nebuchadnezzar came to destroy the base of English, when he was coming on, a, on the war path, he didn't know if he should attack Eretz Yisrael or if he should attack Amoin. He was undecided. He wanted to attack both. He didn't know which to attack first. So he shot arrows in all directions. To the north, east, west, and south. But every arrow he shot, no matter what direction he shot it, it ended up going south, which was towards Eretz Yisrael. And he took that as a sign that he's supposed to go to Eretz Yisrael. When he arrived there, when Nebuchadnezzar arrived there, he, took his gen- he told his general Nebuchadnezzar to go with 300 mules, each of them carrying... 300 axes with specially hardened iron blades. And he took each axe and tried to break the doors. And as he tried to break the doors, he was banging and banging. The axe would break from being banged so hard. And he took another axe and another axe. And he went through all of them. And he could not break open the doors to get in. Eventually, he went, he finished everything. There was one axe left. In frustration, he took that axe and he just tossed it at the door ready to leave in defeat, and that one axe opened up the doors. As soon as he saw that, as soon as Nebuchadnezzar saw that, he realized something is off over here. And he saw a Jewish child walking by, and he asked him, he says, tell me, what did you learn today? He said, the Pasuk tells us Hashem defends his nation and avenges their honor and defeats the other nations. When Nebuchadnezzar realized that, it says he ran away and he became a ger. Nebuchadnezzar, however, remained as cool as he can be. And he was on his boat and he saw prisoners being led away from Shalim. And he turns to his general and he says, who are those? He says, those are Jewish prisoners. He says, what? Why are they walking upright? They should be walking bent over. And immediately the order was given for barrels to be filled up with sand. And every Jew had to carry a heavy barrel on his back, bent over, walking like an animal. Nebuchadnezzar also knew the Kayach And he told his soldiers under no circumstances could any Jew stop even for a moment. Because if they stop for a moment and they daven, they will be saved. 
and they cannot be stopped even for a moment. Unfortunately, this is not the only time in our history that we were treated like animals. Many times we were treated worse than animals. Rishul Grunwald, the grandson of, of the Arugas of Isim, he wrote a sefer called Ain Dima. And the sefer he writes about his experiences during the Holocaust. And he writes how they were being made to walk from their little village to a bigger city where there was a train station. And they're made to walk, and as they're walking, it was a boiling hot day, and they arrived to a bridge. And they had to wait to cross the bridge. And while they were there, they were not allowed to sit, they were not even allowed to move. And then the order was given to cross the bridge. And the commander said, anybody who dirties my bridge will have to lick it up. And we were standing there in the boiling hot. We were ill. Many of us were stricken with the disease of dysentery, and which means you cannot control your bowels. And there was a man there, and he soiled himself on the bridge while they were walking. And the commander saw, and he stopped everybody, and he said, clean it up. He said, how should I clean it? He goes, lick it up. He says, please, he's begging, he's on his knees, please, I can't do that. And he just whacked him in the head, he says, either lick it up, we're going to kill you here. And he started to, but he couldn't do it, he was shot. Treated worse than animals. But the kinna tells us, as he goes through the kinna, it says, Titus came, and he came into the, into the, he goes from the first base to the second base of Mikdash. And the second base of Mikdash has Vespasian, who's the Roman general, and he set up the siege around Yerushalayim. Later on, he was elected as king by the Senate, and he went back, and he sent his son Titus to take over. As Kinnah says, Zachar Asher also Tsar Beflim, referring to Titus. And when Titus came, he breaks into the base of Mikdash, and he starts to bang on the Mizbeach, and he says, you're a king, and I'm a king. Let's do battle, he tells Hashem. And Itaka went, and he burned the base of Mikdash. And he took away slaves. It says 97,000 were taken away as slaves. There were so many slaves that slaves became cheaper than horses. And then they killed 1.1 million Yidin. And they killed them with the sword, and then they hunted them down. It says they hunted them down like rabbits, looking for them, every last one who was hiding. On the way back, Titus was on the ship. As the Gemara tells us, it was a tremendous storm. And Titus looks up and says, Hashem, it looks like you're very powerful only on water. Everything you do with Nayach, with, with power, everything's on water. Fight me on land and we'll see who wins. And immediately the storm stopped and it was a blue sky. He gets off the ship and Hashem sends a little gnat, went up his nose, took up residence by his brain, and it made him crazy. And for a long time, at one time he was walking, there was a Jewish blacksmith banging on his anvil with the hammer, and that caused the gnat to be distracted, and it stopped disturbing Titus. So Titus went over to him and says, for now when you're going to follow me around banging, this way the gnat won't bother me. But it only lasted for a few days. Eventually when Titus died, they opened up his brain, his head, and they saw an, a gnat weighing an ounce sitting on his brain, which is what caused him terrible pain. But he ordered that his body be cremated, 
and spread over the seas, his ashes, and this way he said, Hashem won't be able to find me, he won't be able to judge me. Later on we know his nephew, he just had a nephew, the son of his sister, who became famous known as Unclus. And Unclus wanted to become a Yid. So he conjured up his uncle in a dream and he says, Uncle, who won? Who won? The Jews or the Gaim? Who won? So he tells him, he says, I want you to know, he said, the Jews won, but it's still not worth it, don't become a Jew. He says, why not? They have too many rules, don't become a Jew. He says, Uncle, tell me, what was your punishment for what you did? He says, what was my punishment? The Gemara tells us. He says, what is my punishment? He says, what do you mean by that? He says, every day, my ashes are gathered together, and I'm reconstituted as a person, and then I'm burned, and my ashes are spread over. And this is repeated to me, for me, every single day. And that's the pain that I have. Vespasian had four generals, as the kinder goes on to tell us, and they went inside. They went, four generals, each one was given a section of the Harabayas to take and to destroy. Which means that of his four generals, three of them were very successful. He had one general named General Panger. And General Panger's job was to destroy the western part. But as we know, Chazal tell us, the Kaisal Maravi cannot be destroyed, and he wasn't able to destroy it. And we had to come back to Titus and tell him that he couldn't destroy it. He says, Titus, if I, wouldn't, if I would destroy the whole place, in the history books later on, they're going to say, Titus destroyed the base of Migdash. And people are going to say, really, what was it? It's like a little hut somewhere, a little building somewhere. I left over this wall so people can see how great it was and what you accomplished. He says, very nice. Let's see if you did it in my honor or not. You're going to climb to the top of the wall. You're going to jump off. If you live, that will show you did it for my honor. If you don't, that will show you didn't do it for my honor. Of course, he went to the top and he jumped. As it says, He did not make it. And of course, we know because he did not leave the Kaisal because he wanted to, but it's because Hashem wanted to. Later on, he took the Kaim of the Vesemigdash and he went back to Rome. As we know, when he gets back to Rome, he built the Arch of Titus, the Arch of Triumph, and on there, the depiction of bringing down the Kalim of the Vesemigdash, the well-known story of the Panovich Arav, who's collecting in Italy, and on the way to the airport, he asked the taxi driver to stop off by the Arch. And he gets out, and he goes over to the Arch, and he starts to shake his fist. He says, Titus, Titus, where are you? I'm on the way back there to show I have a yeshiva with hundreds of Balkarim learning Taira. And all you have left is this little arch. And indeed, someone once sent me a picture of a guy who spray painted on it, probably not there anymore, Am Yisrael Chai, on the arch. Titus, Titus, where are you? I have a yeshiva hundreds of Balkarim still learning Taira. But if you look at the end of the kinna, and the kinna ends off, Ubastum Nishma Ura Lama Sishon. It's still his that we are still here. Where are you, Titus, but we are still here. We are still here for you, Hashem. And all that has happened to us, we have not forgotten you, because we love you, Hashem. Story of a couple who didn't have children for many years, 13 years, and 
they got the news once from the doctor that it's not going to happen. They're not going to have. They went to the Rebbe crying. And the Rebbe really had nothing to tell them. It's 13 years of trying to have a child. And then the husband, Avi, there's names actually, and Dasi, turns to her and says, you know, maybe it's time. They've been discussing the past few years to adopt a child. He said, okay, maybe now's the time. They decided they want to adopt a Jewish child. They got connections in Eretz Yisrael, and they applied. They said, okay. They sent them paperwork. They had to fill it out. They checked into them. They said, okay, now you're going to wait. How long do we wait for? A week, a month, a year, how long it takes? So they waited. A few months later, they get a phone call. We found you a child. Beautiful little girl, little baby girl. She's yours. When can we get her? Right now. They quickly went. They put their furniture together in a room for, for a baby girl. And they were so excited. They bought tickets. They went to Yisrael. They went to the hotel. And as soon as they landed, they freshened themselves up. And they ran to the adoption agency to get their baby. They come inside. They're all excited. And they sit down. And this lady's there, the social worker there. said, okay, here you go. Gives them some paperwork. Each of a stack of papers. And they're signing and signing like a mortgage. They're signing and signing. And after about 10 minutes of signing, Avi says, okay, so... When do we get to see her? She's right next door. All you need to do is last two papers and you're good. She takes out a paper, gives it to them, and we're ready to go. He looks at the paper and it says, write down the three things you love most. So he quickly wrote down. He wrote down Hashem. He wrote down Dasi, his wife, and he wrote down basketball. Okay, she writes it. Now turn the paper over and sign it. We're good to go. Takes the paper, he turns it over, and he drops his pen. And his wife looks at him and she goes, what's wrong? He says, I can't, I can't sign this. She says, what's wrong? And she looks at it and it says, with my signature, I attest that I will love my new baby more than the things I wrote on the other side. And he says, I can't write, I can't sign that I'm going to love someone more than Hashem. How we live our lives, we live our lives, but to write that I'm going to love someone more than Hashem, I can't do that. The social, work, social, social worker looks at him and says, are you crazy? Just sign the paper. I can't look at it. She says, you think anybody reads these things? They're going to be in the bottom of a file somewhere. No one's ever going to see it. She says, I, I, can't, I can't sign it. She says, if you don't sign this paper, you're crazy. And in Israel, you'll never be able to adopt a child. And he looks at his wife. They stood up and they walked out. They went back to the hotel, took their stuff, and decided they're going to leave right away. And the taxi, they tell the taxi driver, you know what, just... Go to Kei Rachel. She'll understand us. They went to Kei Rachel, and they davened, they cried, and they went back home. They came back home, they went straight to the Rebbe, because they just couldn't take it, and they burst out crying, and they told him the story. And the Rebbe was crying. And they said, Rebbe, tell me, did I do the wrong thing? Was I stupid? Was I wrong? Did I give up an opportunity? So the Rebbe says, I can't tell you what I would have done. I can't tell you if I would have had the gumption and the guts to do what you did. But one thing I could tell you, nobody ever loses out by doing something for their Vayna Shalom. I don't know what the plans are, but no one ever loses out. And that is the story this Rebbe said over a year later by the bris of their child. Because no one ever loses out in their love for Kaddish Baruch Hu. And that's how this kin ends off. That all that's done to us, Hashem, even though these things but still Hashem we will never forget you
זכור, השאלה זה שר בפנים, שאול Next kin will be saying kinna yud zayin. Very painful kinna. Im techalnu nashim piriyam. Oyelai tipuchim alai li. If it can happen, the women ate their own children. Both us. To ashalna nashim rachmoni aisiladim. Hamadudim tefachim tefachim alai li. If women can eat their precious children, that every year they would measure them how much they grow and donate money for that difference to the base of Mikdash. They can go and eat them. Woe to me. And yet, as the author of this kina, also of Lazar Khalir, goes through the kina, saying different terrible things that happened during the Khurban. 
But at the end of every kinah, it usually ends up with a, an uplifting message for us. This kinah is very different. The end of this kinah is a very strong and stinging rebuke against us, which we will see. As we go through the kinah, every kinah begins with the word im. And then the next word begins with the saf, which spells the word emes. In each terrible thing that happened to us, we say, Kozboch, you are right for doing it to us, emes. If it can be that women can eat their own child, it was emes, it's true. And our people were starving by the Qurban. Unless you think they had no choice, but they at least they, they ate the flesh of their dead children. But that's not what happens. Because the kinna continues, Im taimina zulamazu, if it can happen that one mother would cry out to another one, let us cook our screaming children. Which means their children were still alive. And these ladies thought, let's kill our screaming children so we can eat them. That's what happened with the hunger. They were still alive. Give me your child to eat. If it can happen that I can hide in a cave and dig up my father to eat his flesh, woe to me. As the Medrash tells us, there were a group of people hiding in a cave and there was no food and every day one person's job was to go out to find some food, something. At one time it was a person's, his turn to go and look for food and he couldn't find anything. And then he stumbled, there was a, a body and he looks and it was his own father. He says, I, I can't bring this in and he dug a grave and he buried his father in the grave. And he went back, he said, I'm sorry, I couldn't find any food. He said, what are we going to eat? I couldn't find anything. So another fellow said, you know, I'm going to go out. And he went out, and he came back, he found some flesh. And they all ate. And when they finished eating, the little flesh that they ate, he turns to him, and he says, I don't understand, how did you find it? I couldn't find anything. He says, you have to know how to look. I found a shallow grave. I dug it up, and I found the body that didn't decompose yet. And that's what the kinna says, how personally Basar Ava is Labanim. You know, we're, we're fasting now. Fasting now for a few hours. That's not what this means, that they were hungry. People think, you know, you, your lunch is 10 minutes late, I'm starving. I just had snack, I don't have lunch yet, I'm starving. Obviously, this was not, that's not what this starving is. Ravine Kotler, sister-in-law, writes of her experiences during the war, how she's running from place to place as a little girl, and one time someone arranged with a farmer that she can hide in the barn. She can't leave the barn, but she can hide in the barn. She was in the barn together with a goat. The goat was permitted to leave every day. The goat got food. The farmer was supposed to bring her food every day. And he was paid for it. Some days he quote-unquote forgot to bring the food for her, the little meager rations that she got. She was there so long the time she said she would go over to the goat just to hug the goat to smell the outside a little, what a tree or grass smells like. Sometimes when she had no food at all, and after the farmer would finish nursing the goat, milking the goat, she would go and suck on the goat whatever little milk was left. She said more than once it happened that she was starving so much that she saw the pellets of the goat, when the goat, the goat's waste. And she would look at it, and in her mind she would think, wow, these are, these are chocolate lentils, these are chocolates, pieces of chocolate that my mother brought for me. 
while I was sleeping. And she would think that way, and then she would go, and that's what she would eat, the droppings from the goat. That's what's called starving. But if people experience what, what, what it means for, for hunger. I have an aunt. My mother told me during the war, they shared, five kids are sharing in one bed in the ghetto in Budapest. And her little sister died of starvation. Just, they just watched her die in front of her. My aunt Sivi. It's something you don't forget. But they would never dream of eating their own children. If during the Holocaust, all the stories we hear, they would never dream of eating their own children. Could you imagine if the Navi tells us how bad it was then if they would cook their own children? The Romans went by the siege. When they got inside and already there was no food, they would take any lady who had a child who had, who had breast milk, they would take the Gaisha children and force these ladies to nurse them. And if they finished nursing her and they had a little more milk, they would give her another Gaisha kid to nurse until she had no milk. And then they would laugh as she would try to take her own baby, to nurse her own baby, and of course there was nothing there. Until these mothers were crawling around looking for food and, and scratching onto the wall, they would fall down and die. And then the little babies would crawl over to their mothers and try to nurse from their dead mothers. And as we go through this skin, each time we hear these details, it's MS, 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 it's true. Until we get to the end of the kinna. And all the way down to the kina, he tells us, If it can happen, all these things, if it can be that women eat their own children, and then Hashem responds, What about what you did? You killed a Navi in the base of Migdash. That you don't say. You run around telling everybody, all the bad things Hashem did to you. But somehow you conveniently forget of all the things that you did. And that's how this kin ends. And each time we say Amos, except for the last part. Because when we do sometimes admit that what we did, we don't always admit it with the Amos. There it doesn't say Amos. It's amazing that we dive into Hashem. You know that a mother is much more Rahmanas than a father. Why do we refer to Hashem as Avinu Shabbat Shemayim and not to our mother in Shemayim? There's many answers. The vision to Rebetzin once said, because we don't have to ask for so much Rachmanus. But other answers, but if we know that in our first Golas we were taken out by Aaron and by Moshe. In the second Golas we were taken out by Esther and by Mordechai. And in this Golas we'll be taken out by Eliyahu and Mashiach. Aaron and Moshe spells aim, Aleph Mem. The other gods of Esther and Mordechai also spells aim. And Midsham, today when you get out of Golas, Eliyahu and Mashiach also spells aim. And that's when we dive into Hashem, we say, Avinu Malkeinu, which spells aim. We don't have the chutzpah to say it straight out, to ask Hashem to treat us that way. But in every tefillah we say, Avinu, when we say, Avinu Malkeinu, we are intoning it should be, treat us like a mother. And that's what each of these kin, even though we say all these things happen to us, it's also not just him. It's aim, and aim, and aim, and each time. And if we can go and act to each other this way, because we know that if we act to each other, as the Medrash tells once, if you're not going to act nicely to your brothers, Hashem says, and you're not my children. 
why children have to act nicely, to act, treat each other like children, like brothers and sisters. The big Sadiq name of God Eisner. They called him Godel. His name was God, of God Eisner. Of God Eisner lived in Lodz. He got married. He was born in 1903. He got married at 17. And he was a tremendous, tremendous Sadiq and a Mashbia. In, in Ger, they had a lot of shtibluch, and he, was, he would run the shtibl, and he would say over how they lived in the shtibl, and they had nothing. The people that sat and learned all day, you know, it says, you know, he got supported by his in-laws. How did he get supported by his in-laws? He moved into their house, and when he moved into his house, they cleared off a shell for him. That was, that was his being supported by his in-laws. But no one had anything. They would stay and they would learn. And then the Nazis came, and they were herded into the ghetto, and he was still a very positive kayach. And his wife, who was sick, didn't get the medicine. Within a few weeks, she died. And then his in-laws died, and then his parents died, and he had nobody left. And the war went on. He survived the war. He was in two different concentration camps, in a labor camp. After the war was over, he went back to Lodz. Then he went to Paris. He ended up back in Eretz Yisrael. He remarried, but he never had children. And once again, he became a mashpi in the yeshiva in Ger. One week before Pesach, it was Bein Azmanim, a bachur came over to him and he says, Rabbi, maybe I can help you preparing for Pesach. He said, I don't need anything. I have a very small house, very small apartment. I don't need anything. He said, Rabbi, let me help you, please. I have nothing to do. He said, okay, but it's very tedious in my house because I go through every single safer. I check every safer. It was great, though. Let me help. So he comes into the house and sure enough, he goes through every single safer, checking each one page by page. But Rav God felt he's, you know, being Matthias is Bachar, and he would tell him interesting things about each safer. At one point, the Bachar picks up, it looked like a, a large safer, and Rav God says, Ah, that's my sitter. Oh, it's a very special sitter. He says, Really? He goes, Yeah. Let me tell you about that sitter. You see, that sitter belongs to my daughter. After the war was over, I went back to Lodge. Maybe I'll find some somebody. And I didn't find anybody. But there were people that were cleaning up and they were dumping swarm in front of the Jewish center. They were just throwing the swarm, they didn't know what to do with it. And I would go there every day and look through the swarm, see what's Mama Shamus, what could be saved, what could be used. And I would go through the swarm, that's what I did every day. And one day I was going through the swarm and I pick up a sitter and I open it up. It was my daughter's sitter. It had her name in the front, it was my daughter's sitter. And all of a sudden I burst out crying. All the tears from the past three years. It just I burst out crying and I was crying and I held it so tight. I felt I had something, something left for my daughter. And I cherished that sitter. That is that sitter. The Bokh is looking at the sitter. There's no name in the sitter. He doesn't know what he's talking about. So he looks up at Rav God. And Rav God says, oh, you're probably wondering where, where the name. I said my daughter's name is there. There's no name. He says, yeah, I am wondering. He says, let me tell you, about 10 years ago, I was putting my swarm together, and I noticed that the sitter was getting a little brittle. So I went to a binder, a swarm binder, I said, could you please bind this safer? It's very, very valuable to me. Please be very careful with it. He goes, of course. And he bound it. I came to pick it up. It looked beautiful. I come and say, I open it up. And I realized that the first page that had my daughter's name on it was thrown out because it was a little torn and he put in a beautiful new page and the bar says and he goes and nothing I thanked him which I, he says why don't you go look in the garbage look in the geniza somewhere you have to throw it somewhere didn't you want the paper 
And if God looks at him and says, Really? And what would I do if I find the paper? What's going to happen if I find the paper? Do you know how that binder is going to feel? When he hears what I'm doing? How could I go and do that to somebody else? That's what it means to always put someone else's feelings in front. If we're going to say this kinna and do the MS and think of a father as an aim, we also have to remember that if, a, if Hashem is our father, if Hashem is our mother, then our fellow Jews are brothers and our sisters, and only if we act that way will we have no problem having to say things at the end. Next kill will be saying is Kinnu Yates. Lachan Hashem at Stoko. Baisus Hashem Refleso. Miyaz Viadato. You Hashem are the righteous one. And all the beautiful things you did for us. Lono Baisus upon him. And we are we are embarrassed. Bilchina Hashem Nitzravto Baisona Tavto. Because of all the things that you did for our benefit. And yet, the way we responded. This kinna, 12 times, Rabbi Lazakir writes, 12 times we admit how Hashem is the righteous one, Hashem and Saka, of upon him, how we are ashamed because we do not appreciate all that Hashem did to us. One of the Midas, Rabbi Lazakir says, to work on, to bring back the base of Midas, the kinna he goes through, Hashem and Saka, how it was when Hashem redeemed us from Mitzrayim. How He saved us by the Yamsuf. 
The Kinnik continues. He gave us wafers coated in honey, which was the mon. Hashem gave us the mon. And what do we do with the mon? Not only do we not appreciate the mon, we used it to serve the eagle. We gave it to the we gave it for the eagle as of. Hashem went, Hashem gave us the, the, the Mishkan. And what do we do? We cause it to be destroyed. And each time as we go through the kinah, each thing that Hashem did for us, and we were not makirtayv. To think that we used the mon that Hashem gave us against him for the for the for the eagle. The Gemara Vayizar tells us we were scared that with the mon we're going to blow up. It's, we're eating, eating, and nothing's going out. Instead of appreciating how how every part of the mon is used for our benefit, we went and we said we're going to blow up. In fact, the Nachash, the Gemara says, the Nachash says, you're complaining. The snake says, you're complaining. I can eat everything. And everything tastes, has one taste like dust. You only have to eat one thing. It has a taste like everything. And you're complaining. And that's what this kin is teaching us. As it goes through each one, teaching us how we have to go and have, and, and, and be makritayv. Then at the end, the Chashem Atzaka, the Kima Shilai, the Noi, the where we had a, a, a Mishkan and Shilai and Naiv and all these places. And then finally, the base of Migdash, the Chashem Staka, Bishnei Churubais, Shecharvu, How you went and gave us the base of Migdash, and through our actions, it was destroyed. Sometimes we do things we don't realize that there are ramifications and effects. We do something and we forget about it. But we have to know, we're seeing here, Velazar Clear is teaching us. Every action that we do has an impact on this side or on this side. And either we're going to say the Chashem and Staka, if we don't say that and don't internalize that, we're going to end up with the loan of Baishas upon him. There was a there was a family living in Eretisol and Harnov, was married also for many years, didn't have any children. And one day after almost nine years of marriage, they were by the doctor, and the doctor says, sit down, I have to tell you something. They sit down, they're getting very nervous, scared, what they're going to hear, and he says, I want you to know that you're expecting. And they were thrilled. He says, no, no, there's some other news. He says, what's that? He goes, you're expecting. You just told, you're expecting. You're expecting. You're expecting. He says, what are you talking about? He says, you're having quintuplets. You're having five children. Instant family. What's going to be? He goes, well, it's pretty dangerous. you got to stay in your bed. But you can have five children. We have to monitor you every week, every two weeks. But that's what you're having. And they were so excited. Of course, the community said they're going to get together. And she had the children. Her parents already passed away. His parents were living in New York. They came in to help. It was tremendous, tremendous simple when she had the children. They were all healthy. She was healthy. Very tired, but healthy. And her, his parents couldn't stay that long. They stayed for a month. They had to go back. The community in Harnot chipped in. They helped out another month, another six weeks. But then, life goes on. Except for these kids. These kids, like all babies, they just want to eat and eat and then cry and eat and cry and diapers changed. And it was very, very difficult. And they hired a nurse, but they ran out of money. And it was just very difficult. One day they get a phone call, and a lady says... Hi, this is so-and-so. 
are you the one that had quintuplets? She goes, yes. She goes, do you need any help? She goes, yes. What can I do for you? Anything? Everything? She says, okay. What's your address? She goes, address. And she forgets about it. Nothing happens. Three weeks later, she gets an envelope in the mail, opens it up. There's a check for $15,000. $15,000. Tremendous. They hired a night nurse, and, and, and they started living again. Two weeks later, the phone rings again, and this lady calls up, and she introduces herself. She goes, hi, I'm just curious, did you receive the check? She goes, yes, oh, I'm so sorry, I didn't call you to thank you. Thank you so much, it's so busy. No, 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 I'm not calling for that. I just want to know if everything's okay. She goes, yes. She goes, now the lady felt a little bad. She didn't call to say thank you. She goes, maybe you want to come by, and I don't know where you live. Maybe you want to come by and see the children? She goes, oh, I'd love to. I actually live in Harnov. Wow, okay, so come on by. She lives a few blocks away. And they were so excited, and sure enough, about an hour later, the doorbell rings, the door opens up, and there's this not young lady standing by the door. She invites her in, she's so excited, and she shows her the babies, and she picks up each baby, gives her a kiss, puts them down, she says, you want some coffee? Sure, and they go into the dining room. The lady looks up, she's a picture on the wall, she goes, who's that? Who's that? And she faints. She faints. So this mother, she doesn't know what to do. Calls the Tola, they want, they bring her to the hospital. And this lady's husband goes to check up on her. She's okay, she had a shock. Could I come visit her? Yeah, you can come visit. She comes to visit her. And she's there, and she's talking to her. She says, is everything okay? She looks up and she says, who's that picture of in your wall? She says, that's my mother. It's my mother. She says, let me tell you a story. She said... We were a group of friends, five very, very close friends. And like other people in Europe, we got stuck. We were taken to the concentration camps. We were taken to a place called Mauthausen. And we were there. And we decided we're going to stick together. And many times we have to do things, but we stuck together. And we were there. And one time, someone says, you know, I think in a few weeks is Hanukkah. So we said, and... Well, let's, let's do something for Hanukkah. Let's say Hanukkah left. She says, oh, let's just go to the store down the block and buy Hanukkah. What do you, what do you, we're in concentration camp. What, what do you plan on doing? She says, well, you know, we can take some string from our uniforms, yeah, and then, and we can find a potato and use that. He goes, yeah, and what are you going to light it with? We're going to get oil from. She says, you know what? Why don't we go? We have a few weeks of Hanukkah. We'll each take a little, little piece of our butter that we get daily, and we'll use that. Okay, let's see what happens. Sure enough, it was Arab Hanukkah. They had no butter. Even what they got every day wasn't enough to live on. They couldn't put away anything. And they were very sad. Until one girl said, you know what? Who knows what's going to happen to us anyways? Let's break into the kitchen. And we'll get some butter. We'll get some oil. All right. They decided to do it. These girls, they broke into the kitchen. They found the oil on the way out. A Nazi saw them. He saw them, he pistol whipped them, and he said, I'm going to deal with all of you tomorrow. And they went back to their barracks, crying, and they knew that that's it. They're all going to get hanged tomorrow. When all of a sudden one of them said, you know what? There's a lady here, a lady Jewish prisoner, but she for some reason has special privileges. Maybe she can help us. She lives by herself. She has special privileges. Maybe she can help us. So we went... In the middle of the night to her barracks, we opened up the door, 
There was a light on inside, and there's this lady sitting on her bed with a Tehillim, and there's a Hanukkah, there's a candle burning. Couldn't believe it. But she looks up and says, what are you doing here? And we told her what happened. Maybe she can go and, and help us out. So what are you, crazy? If they see that you came here, they're going to kill you, and they're going to kill me. Get out of here. I can't help you. Please, you're going to kill Get out of here. And she sends them out. This was their last hope. They go back to the barracks, and they're waiting for sunrise when they know it's all over. Sure enough, in the morning after roll call, these five girls are taken, and they're brought to the gallows. And as they're walking up to the gallows and standing there, this lady, this privileged lady, comes running out from her barrack, her bunk. She runs up to the commander there, she starts talking to him, pointing, looking all different directions. And the guy's looking at her, and immediately he tells everybody, everybody back to their barracks. And everybody went back to their barracks. We didn't know what was going on. We know we went back to the barracks. The next thing we know, it's quiet. Nobody was allowed out of their barracks. And then a few days later, on May 5th, 1945, the U.S. Army surrounded Mathausen. And it was too quiet. They didn't know what was going on. And they waited a few days. And then they came into the camp and they liberated the camp. We figured out what happened was this lady knew many languages. So she was an interpreter. She would sit down by the radio on a shortwave radio, listening to what was going on. And her job was to report to the commander what's going on outside. He didn't trust information he was getting from the headquarters in Berlin. And that's what her job was. And in return, she wasn't harmed that she had food. What happened was she came running out and she said that the Americans are right here. They're going to be here in a few hours. She knew that they're still a few days away. But she risked her life to save us. And she went and she said that the Americans are right here. They sent everyone back to their barracks and the Nazis left. There were very, very, there were fewer than 50 soldiers there when the Americans arrived. After the war, we looked for her. We looked for her everywhere. We could never find her. All five of us, wherever we lived, we couldn't find her. I walked into your house, and that's her. That's her. That lady on the wall, that was her. That's why I fainted. Now you tell me it's her mother. I'm so happy that I gave you the money. Your mother saved our lives. Now this mother looks at her and says, That's your side of the story. Now let me tell you mine. I was very, very depressed. I didn't have any children. And one day, I had a dream. My mother came to me in a dream. And she said to me, Don't worry, Hashem heard your tefillahs. Five for five. And she went away. I know what she was talking about. I told my husband, but nothing happened. And then two weeks later, she came to me dreaming again. She says, Don't stop davening. Hashem heard your tefillahs. Five for five. I don't know what she was talking about. And then it was by the doctor and he told us, I'm going to have five children. I understood what she meant, five. I didn't know what she meant with the other five. And now I realize that my mother saved five neshamas. And therefore I had the supposed to have five children. Five for five. What an amazing lesson that nothing goes unrewarded. Every single mitzvah we do and with every action we do, either we're going to say L'cha Hashem Atztaka, or Chas Hashem we're going to say L'anu Baishas upon Him. L'cha Adin Atztaka, L'anu
Next kid will be saying is Kinnah Chavalev, a well-known Kinnah, the story of Ruge Malchus. This Kinnah is perhaps not directly related to the Churban, but it's obviously connected from the effects of the Churban. And as we go through this Kinnah, it's not a history lesson, although as we read the Kinnah, it will look like all these ten were killed in one shot one time period, that's not really what happened. It was over a period of a few years. The king begins telling us that the king told B'nai Yisrael, I read in the Torah, he came up to Chazal, and he said, I read in the Torah that if somebody kidnaps somebody and he sells them, that the Chayv Misa, is that true? And they said, yes. He said, well, I read in the Torah that the brothers kidnapped Yasef and I don't read any and they sold him I don't read anywhere where it says that they were punished I will go and I will take up where Chazal left off where the terror left off and I will go bring the punishment so they heard this it says Rabbi Shmuel went up to Shemayim to ask them if they have to accept this Gezeira and he heard that he has to accept this Gezeira the Kinnik goes to tell us what happened. There was Shum ben Gamliel, there was Shmuel Kaingadol. Each one wanted to be killed first, not to have to see the pain and the suffering of the other. And they had a gyrol, and it says, "Benayful gyrol, a Rabbi Shimon." It fell on Rabbi Shimon. Pasha Savara, he stuck at his neck. Uvacha knigzog zera, and he cried as zera was fulfilled. The next. The next one to be killed, Mizera Arain from the Zera An Shal Bevakash Livkais Hagvira. It was a small Ben Alisha the Kaingadal. And when they're about to kill him, he was a very handsome person and says the governor's daughter came and said, Maybe you can go and keep him alive for my pleasure. And the governor said, No, but I tell you what I could do. I can give you his skin. And he went and they ripped off the skin off his face 
to go and to give it to her and preserve it for her. And when they reached the part of the tefillin, he was quiet all the time until they reached the part of the tefillin where he started screaming. The continues. Ma'akrov Havias Rabbi Kiva, they brought Rabbi Kiva, who's an Iker Hiram, and they brought Rabbi Kiva, and the well known, this happened 60 years after the Khurban, and Rabbi Kiva was at 120 at the time when he was murdered, and they told him that you're not allowed to teach Torah, and he would teach Torah anyways. And then on Yom Kippur, Turnus Rufus came, and he ordered the removal of his skin with an iron comb. The Sarkuas Besarai, as the Kinnah tells us, the Masrek Shal Barzel they, they skinned him. And then Yatsa Nishmasa, Nishmasa when he got, he started to say Shema, when he came to Echad, Baskal Amra, Ashrechar of Yakiva, Kufach Tahar, Bechal Mini Tahara. You are pure. We famous known as the Talmidim said, Ad Heichan, like till now, still now you have to be happy even though you're getting murdered like this. And he said, What do you mean? Kol Yamai, my whole life, I wanted to go and serve Hashem, Chol and now I finally get the opportunity. I should not go and be happy. And therefore I get to say Shema. And this is something that you didn't live with. We're born with Shema. And we die with Shema. They say over of uh, David Pavarsky, during the war, they were hiding out in a forest and they heard the Nazis were coming. So they had a hideaway, a place to run to. And they were running there. And everyone was hiding inside, quietly, when David Pavarsky walked out. And he went to hide by some other trees. The Nazis came, they didn't find him, and they left. But someone asked him, he says, Rav David, why did you leave the safety of where we were? He says, if you notice where we were, some people used it as a bathroom. And it smelled. They said, because of the smell, you're going to give up your life and run outside and hide behind a tree? He said, no, no, I was very concerned the Nazis would find us. And they would kill us. On the spot, and I would want to scream out Shema Yisrael Hashem Elokeinu Hashem Echad. I wouldn't be able to scream it out here. So if we're going to get caught anyways, I'd rather get caught in a place where I can my Shema can leave by saying Shema Yisrael. The kid continues with Rebbe Ben Yehuda. They brought him, and says the Roman went and said, because you're not allowed to give smicha, and he said, how could I stop giving smicha at the age of seventy? He said, I'm not letting a thousand five hundred years. And we're not going to stop it here, break the Messiah. So he gave smicha to five Talmidim. Rav Meir, Rav Yudah Bar Yilai, Rav Shema Bar Yechai, Rav Yeshe Ben Chalafta, and Rav Loza Ben Shemua. And when the Romans saw, they were running. He said, you guys run away. And he stuck himself between two rocks. And he wouldn't budge. And the Romans couldn't get through. And they were shooting arrows at him until they killed him. Next was killed was Rav Hanida Ben Trajan. You know, Chanidah ben Trajan would also teach Torah. And they went and they wrapped him up in his own Sefer Torah. And they stuffed it with wet wool. And they lit the fire. When that was happening, they did that to increase the pain. The executioner asked him, he said, tell me if I make your death quicker, if I take away the wool and I, add, and I, I increase the fire, will I get rewarded? Will I go to Ilam Abba with you? And he said, yes. But before he did that, some of his Talidim said, Rebbe, why don't you open your mouth and let the fire go in? He says, Hashem gave me my life and Hashem will take it. I'm not going to go here and make it make it quicker. And he said, but, but your life, what do, you, what do you see what's happening? He says, I see the letters of the terror going up, the parchments being burned. 
but the letters, the ruchnius, that's going up. And he said the same thing with my body. My body may be burnt, but my neshama is going up in purity. And then the executioner went, he did it, and that's when the basel came out that make room for him and Rabbi Huda as he's going into Ganadin. And that is when they heard this Bacha Rabbi Rabbi cried and he said, how precious every moment is that a person could acquire Alama in one moment. And then the Kinnah continues with Rabbi Shavah Cipher, who was a cipher and he was murdered while he was reciting Shema. And they pulled out his tongue and they, they, they spread it out for the dogs to go and to the wild dogs until his body came apart. Similar, the next one is of Chutzpah. Of Chutzpah is a targumen. He was uh, someone who would stay over the shurim of others. He was one day shy of his 130th birthday. And he said, you want to murder me? Murder me. Give me one more day so I can have 130 full years of saying Shema. And they laughed at him and they ripped out his tongue and they threw it in the garbage where the pigs came and ate it. Interestingly, you don't have time to explain now, but the Kinnah does not say the last two, which was of Elijah ben Shumua, or Machlegis, of Chanina ben Chachinoi, or Yehuda ben Dima. And the Kinnah concludes, this one concludes with an uplifting message to us, Yeth of Hashem, Hashem, we won't suffer anymore, and Hashem will say to us, The days of your mourning have come to an end, something that we all hope for. Why do we cite this kin on Tisha B'Av? It has nothing to do with the Churban Abayas directly. And if Cheskel Levenstein says, we have two things left from the Churban Abayas. We have the Kaisel HaMaravi, and we have Sinas Chinam. So those are two things we still have left. And as long as we don't get rid of one of them, all we will have left is the, is the other. We're not going to get back everything without getting rid of that. We know that the night of Tisha B'Av always falls out the same night that Pesach fell out. We know that one of them says we end up in Mitzrayim because the brother sold Yosef. And unless we can go and fix that, we're going to have, that's where the night of Tisha B'Av is always the same night, to show us they both have the same Shairish. It says when the base Midrash is destroyed, or when a tzaddik is killed, is like the base Midrash being destroyed. And therefore all these people got killed, it's like the base Midrash being destroyed over and over and over again. And that's why we say it now, because the Shairish is from the destruction of the base Midrash. And everything that happens to us, as we've heard today, and we've heard a lot in the past, everything happens, every pain, every sorrow happens because we don't have the base Midrash. And we wonder why these sorrows happen. They say that Chavetz Chaim, when he was a child, used to play a game with his friends. The game was called, probably not in English, but the game was called, If I Were God. And the children would say, If I were God, what would I do? And one child would say, If I were God, if I was God, nobody in town of Radin would be hungry. Everyone would have food. And the other kid said, If I was God, then the person in Shul who's missing a leg, he would grow a leg, he would walk normally. And everybody would say these wonderful things that would happen if they were God. Then the Chavetz Chaim, who was eight at the time, said, If I was Hashem, I wouldn't do anything differently. I would do exactly what he's doing now. Even at that age, he understood that Kosh was perfect and he only does good. But because we don't have the base Midrash, we don't realize for our benefit, and these things wouldn't have to happen at all. 
We hear a lot of people, the tragedies that happened recently, you don't have to go through, we all know, from Iran to Surfside, and everyone's talking about, what should I do? How could I go? What's the message Hashem is sending me? Whenever I hear people ask, what's the message Hashem is sending me? I think of what happened about 20 years ago. There was a string of tragedies in Eretz Yisrael. And they went to Rabbi Yashiv. They said, what should we do? What should we work on? He says, you have to do tshuva. He goes, but what should we work on specifically? And Rabbi Yashiv said, really? Take a mishabura, open up to the first page and start. If you see a problem, work on it. Uh, people don't know what they have to work on. People ask what we should work on because they're hoping you're going to tell them, you have to work on Shabbos. Oh, Baruch I'm good with Shabbos. At least he didn't tell me the other thing. Each person doesn't want to hear what they have to work on. But what this kin is telling us, these were all tzaddikim. And the sherish all comes from the churban, which comes from Sinas Chino. So I'll tell you another place that they asked. There was something going on in Bnei Brak. And they went to Shlomo Zaman Orbach. And they said, what should we do? We, these tragedies you want to fix up. He says, some of us want to go make an Arab Shabbos learning kaila, learning Seder. Others say we should go and be careful with Lashon Hara. And others are saying different things. We have to be Kabbalah Shabbos early. And he told me, he says, you really want to do something? No, you don't have to do all those things. Next time one of your neighbors wants to make an addition to his dira, to his apartment, don't be upset. Don't be against it. Don't fight against it. You don't have to do everything else. What he was telling us was that the shayrish is sinas chinam. If we would love the other person, all these things wouldn't be necessary. And we go through, and we read about these, these tzaddikim who were killed, obviously not for their own issues, but for us. We have to remember that everything comes from not having the base of Middash, and that comes from sinas chinam, not having the love to one another.
Next kill will be saying it's Kinuch of Gimel. This Navi, Chatasi Hashemayma, my sin caused the destruction of the base of Migdash. The Demasi, Alechiyah Azrima, and I'm going to cause my tears to run down my face. And this day, I'm going to let her be cry. I'm going to cry about this day each year. This kina, which we repeat seven times, on this day, I'm going to cry every year, recognizing that everything, as we spoke the last kin, everything comes from the Chubram Beisamigdash. And we can go and we can fix all the problems that we have and have organizations for every problem that we have and do a good job of it. And that will be like a nice city in Chelm that has a very curvy road. There's always people getting injured on that curve. And then they say, there's ridiculous people are getting injured. We have to transfer them to the hospital. We have to fix the situation. Let's go and build a hospital right here. Instead of fixing the road, so no one should get hurt anymore. And we as well, we can continue to make these beautiful organizations that we have that do tremendous things for us. That's building the hospital near the curvy road. But if we look at this kina, we want to solve it all. We have to go and fix the road, which means get the base of Middash rebuilt. And that we do is by behaving properly towards each other. The Kinnah tells us a frightening story, which is from the Gemara as well as in the Medrash, tells us about a brother and sister, the son and daughter, a Rabbi Shmuel Kaingadol. It says, When the Eden were taken as slaves, they were also taken as slaves. They were sold. And they were sold to two separate masters. And each one ended up by neighbors. They were schmoozing with each other. And this guy said, you know, I have a slave, he is so handsome. And the other one said, you know, I have a maidservant, a slave, she is so beautiful. Why don't we put them in a room together, and they'll create beautiful children, and we will sell them as slaves, we'll make a lot of money. It's a great idea. And they went... And they agreed. And they put him in one room. And the masters are outside. They're very excited. 
And they both started to cry. It was a dark room. They couldn't see each other. Each one remained in their corner. Nin, and he thought to himself, the boy, Nin Aharin, I am the, a descendant of Aharin Akayin. Eichle Shifcha, you know, you say, I'm gonna, I'm gonna live with a Shifcha? And he started to cry. And she said, Bas Yechevet, I am a descendant of Yechevet. Eichle Evan, you know, I'm gonna go and marry, uh, an Evid? Oikizeis Gonzo, I am Whoa, this was the decree of Hashem. And they both stayed in their corners and they cried the whole night. Or Biker Zezek Yikuru, it came morning time and they realized they saw each other and they realized that they were brothers and sisters. Hayachi, Bahayacha Segbiru. Each one said, Whoa, my brother, whoa, my sister. It is Dabku Yachad. They went, they hugged each other. Ad Yatsa Nishmasa Binishima. And they were crying so much, the Nishamas went out and they died. Why is this included in the Kina? This is obviously very painful and very sad. But it's not like the masters were doing anything cruel. This was a business decision. They weren't in pain. They weren't getting tortured. This was a business decision. There were many other things that Akina could have highlighted of, of the torturous things that went on. Of all things, this is very, very sad and tragic. But it's not a painful thing. They didn't do it with bad intentions, so to speak. And the Swarm tell us that we see from here, but the Swarm tell us by Kairach, these were innocent children. What right did they have to be punished? What right did they have for them to go through any of this suffering? And as we see, we learn by Kairach, it says when it comes to Machlechus, even little children get punished. Even little children get swept along. And what this kin is telling us is that while the children may not have been a chroi for the Churban bias, yet they too were punished. Because by Machlechus, the children also get punished. Chavetz Chaim once traveled somewhere. He came to a city and he asked to spend some time in the city. And there was a terrible machlekes in the city. And he went... Chorus, 
Next kid will be saying Kinulama Dalid. This kid was written by Rehuda Levi. Yerim Achpi, Yerpati, Yerpili, Avaini. On the day that I creased my, my burden, Veshokhiyad, Bedam, Navi, Vechatsar, Mitash Hashem. Most of the kid is talking about what happened to us. This painful kinna, we discussed what we did. That we alluded to an earlier kinna. And Hashem said we are quick to say what happened to us, but not as quick to say what we did. And the Kinnah tells us that we became guilty in one instant of seven of errors. Murder, we murdered a Kayan, we murdered a Navi, we murdered a Shaifet in the base of Migdash, on Yen Kippur, on Shabbos. The Kinnah goes through what we did. A quote from the Gemara and Gitin. Warren and Zion tells us that when the general of Uzzaradan came into the basement, he saw blood on the floor boiling. And he said, what, what is that? They said, that's, 
That's the blood of animals. This is, you know, this is a butcher shop. We we, we shack the animals here. That's what the blood is. See, he took other animals and he slaughtered them and he compared the blood. He said, they don't match. He says, tell me what happened here or I'm going to skin you alive. So he said, okay, this is the blood of the Navi of Zechariah. Why did you kill him? He killed him because he was bothering us and telling us to do tshuva and we were not interested. She so said, okay, son of Uzzarada, I'm going to go and make up for it. And he went. It says he brought Isis and Hedrick, Gedalus and Hedrick, Katana. He brought the Sanhedrin and Kotaleo. He went and over the blood, he slaughtered all of them, mixed their blood with Zechariah's blood. Noch. It did not rest. Bachurmu Vusulais. He went and he brought 80,000 young children, young boys and girls, and he slaughtered them and mixed them with the blood. It did not rest. He brought the little school children and he killed them. Finally, Nebuzan Radin says, I exterminated the finest of them. You want me to kill them all? When he said that, the blood rested. But at that moment, he here, Chuba came to his mind and he said, if this is a punishment for one person killing all these people, for, the, for them killing just Zechariah, can you imagine what the punishment for me will be is, Arach, he ran away, he left final instructions for his family, and he was Megayer, because he was afraid. But we are still left, we are still left that we went and we killed Anavi. And the kinder goes through, this thing we said of how they went and they killed them and what was happening with the blood. And we see even the Vuzaradan learned from here that how careful we have to be to go and to make sure that we don't go and do these types of do these types of things. Sometimes we think, so what? Someone else does something. What does it want from me? What am I supposed to do about it? What effect does that have on me? And we have to realize we're all part of a cloud. We all have things that we can do. And a person can never say, look, they did that, what does that have to do with me? Look how many thousands of people were killed because of something that we did. Not everybody killed Zechariah, but yet everybody was punished for it. And just like everyone was punished for something, we can get rewarded too. There was a, a lady in a ghetto who was giving birth, and she was, she was pregnant and she was stuck, she didn't know what to do. So she snuck into town and she found a doctor a Geisha doctor, and she went to the doctor, and the doctor helped her. And when she finished, she said, got ready to leave. And the doctor said, where are you going? So I'm going, I'm going back to the ghetto. So you can't go there, it's dangerous. She goes, what are my options? Stay with me. She said, stay with you. I can't, my husband's in the ghetto. Bring your husband here, I'll hide you both. She goes, but I, I have three children in the ghetto. Bring them here also. They went, they brought, she brought her husband and her three children, and they stayed by her. And she watched them. Almost towards the end of the war, somebody got suspicious, told on her, and they had to run away to the forest. And they survived. They moved to New York. After that, they moved to Eretz The family grew. They had children. They got married. They had grandchildren. And they started to get married. But one of the chastas, one of the granddaughters said, you know, that story you always tell us about that lady. Maybe she's still alive. Maybe we can go and bring her here and see what she accomplished. Okay, see if you can track her down. They actually flew there to Europe, to Poland. They tracked her down, and they brought her to Eretz to the Chasna. 
She was obviously a an honorary member, an honorary guest. And by the chassid, they were dancing. All the grandchildren were dancing around her. Many, many tens of grandchildren. One of the granddaughters went over to her and says, You know, I in school I had to do a project on the Holocaust. And I saw that the guy were not very kind to the Jews, even the regular ones, so to speak. What led you to risk your life to save my grandparents? And she says, you know, in my family, we read the Bible. And I remember reading about Sodom being destroyed. And I remember how Avram, diving to Hashem, in the schus of ten tzaddikim, would you save it? And Hashem said, yes. But there weren't ten tzaddikim there, so there was not saved. And I thought to myself, this country is going crazy now what's happening. Maybe if I can be a righteous person, and maybe if there are nine other righteous people like me, this madness could stop. So I went to be a righteous person, that's why I saved you. Evidently there weren't another nine righteous people like me, and we know what happened. But we see from here, the consequences of just actions of a few people, the, the way they can manifest itself. And over here, as we say in this kinah, how we went and we killed the Navi, and how we got punished for it. Kinnah will be saying is Kinnah Lam Vav coming towards the end of the Kinnah now we speak about Eretz Yisrael eight of the nine the next nine of the Kinnah they're known as the, the Tzayinim we all start with Tzayin all of us looking to get back to Eretz Yisrael this Kinnah was written by Yehuda Levi about 850 years ago and he writes about his desire to move to Eretz Yisrael to go to Eretz Yisrael and the Kinnah tells us of what happened, how he wanted to go. We know that he wrote the Sefer Kuzari, and inside there talks about how the king said he wants to have a discussion, a debate, which is the real religion. And he participated him with Islam and Christianity. For Shetzev, he won the debate. But then the king turns to him and says, if everything you're saying is true, and Eretz show is so important, why are you still here? And Yudha Levi said, I had an answer for every question they asked me. Except for that one. Because indeed, why am I still here? And he made his way to Eretz Yisrael. 
not clear exactly what happened, but they say when he arrived there, he kissed the ground, and an Arab horseman went and trampled him. We say in this kina, I will inquire, won't I inquire about your welfare, how you are, those who seek your welfare, and to seek out what's going on in Eretz Yisrael. And we see it true today. We're always asking people, what's going on in Eretz Yisrael? What's going on in Eretz Yisrael? And as we know, Eretz Yisrael is, we say in, in, in benching, Eretz Chemda, Taiva, Urochava. And we know Eretz Yisrael, it's Eretz Chemda, it's precious, it's Taiva. What's Urochava? Expansive, it's such a big place, Eretz Yisrael. You look at a map, it's barely a line between two countries. And, and that's, that's, how can you say Urochava? You have to be a little realistic. And we all know a person can say, I'm a very wealthy person because I own an acre of real estate, an acre of land. Where do you own an acre of land? I own an acre of land in Montana. It's very nice, you know, it can help you buy a hamburger or something with that. It's not, not so valuable. But if you own an acre of land in midtown Manhattan, it's a lot more valuable. It's the same acre, but it depends where it is. Eretz Yisrael is such a special place, even though it may not be so big compared to other countries. The, the Kedusha of Eretz Yisrael is very special. And it's something that we have to constantly keep in mind. It tells us, we say in the Kinnah, Who can make wings for me so I can fly? I don't know what they thought about this when they said this 500 years ago or 400 years ago. But today we know what it means to have wings and just to fly to Eretz Yisrael. How easy it is to go. How I wish I can just breathe the air of Eretz Yisrael. And we say, to go, just to go into Eretz Yisrael. Unfortunately, every year we speak about, you know, people speak about, so we don't have the base minutes, but we have Eretz Yisrael, we have, we have yeshivas there, and we have kailim, we have chesed. And that's, we used to say, yeah, but we don't have the base minutes, we don't have the shechina. This year it's a little different. This year people want to go to Eretz Yisrael, and Hashem says, you know, until now, you're able to come, but not everybody was showing up. So now, no, now you can't come. You say, what? I can't come. I, I, I want to go, I want to go tour Eretz Yisrael. You can't come tour Eretz Yisrael. I want to bring my money. No, no, no. You want to come here to live? You can come. Right now, you can't just go to Eretz Yisrael. Um, I, I, I live there. You live in Eretz Yisrael? Permanently? You're a citizen? No, but I, I'd like to come for a little while. Sorry, you can't come. I, I want to come learn. Oh, you want to come learn? So you can come. That's how it stands right now in Eretz Yisrael. For most of us, for our lifetime, we took it for granted. You can go to Eretz Yisrael anytime you want. Just to go on a plane to go to Eretz Yisrael. It was so simple, but now it's not so simple anymore. And that's something that we have to keep in mind. Sometimes people say about Eretz Yisrael, well, I don't know what's so good, not so good. The Kleisberger Rebbe, who lost 11 children by the Holocaust, murdered by the Nazis, said, that his goal is to build a Maisid for every single child that he lost that was murdered. And he went and he did that. He did so many things he did. He did so many things. Laniato Hospital, Kirit Sanz in Union, so many different places that he did and that he built. But he said, I find the thing that I did most important was building Kiryat Sanz in Eretz Yisrael, being part of building up Eretz Yisrael. And he spoke and he said how important that he didn't have to come to Eretz Yisrael. And there was a journalist there named Nissen Gordon. And he says, Rebbe, is Eretz Yisrael really safe for the Yidden? He says, of course, Eretz Yisrael is the safest place for the Yidden. He says, when I go back to America, what should I tell the Jews of America? They should come to Eretz Yisrael? He said, absolutely. He says, yeah, but doesn't the government make things difficult for from Yidden here in Eretz Yisrael? 
And the Rebbe looked at him and says, Tell me, after Adam and Chava didn't have there in Ganadin, was Ganadin not Ganadin anymore? That doesn't affect the Eretz Yisrael. And therefore every year it has to come and we have to go and think about that. And even if we speak to Rav, he says, Don't go, we don't go to Eretz Yisrael, we're here. Yet in our feeling, our center of life, our center of thought should always be that way. As it says in the Kinnah, Tzirayin HaLeitz Yishali, Lishlom HaSirayach. We'll be saying is Kinnamem Hey, which we'll be singing together, and then we'll be finishing with uh, Ashrei and finishing Davening. The Gemara Yuma tells us that the kind God after the Alavida would take would lean from the Sefer and then he would say There's more written here than what I said, and the same applies to our Kinnis. There's still many more Kinnis that need to be said. We have a whole afternoon to go and still be involved with the Kinnah. The last kindle we'll be saying starts off, What was to the, the, the cry of the lady who's giving birth? Like a, like a young one, lady who is crying for the husband of her youth. And it goes through the different reasons why we cry, of how the Kahanim got sent out, and how we used to go and, and sing there and dance there, and the carbon tumid, etc., and the question is, why of all pains do we compare to the pain of childbirth? When you can compare to the pain of a broken leg or, or a kidney stone, or, or these other things, why the pain of childbirth? And the Pana Visharov 
right after the Holocaust on Tisha B'Av in 1947, was sitting with the few bachrim that he had in the shul they were renting in Bnei Brak, and it was Tisha B'Av. They all suffered the death of their parents, their siblings. They were broken. He didn't need to give them chizik and things like that. But he told them, he said, why are we crying for the, for the pain of a lady giving birth? Because the, cha- the pain of childbirth is different than every other pain. Because in this pain of childbirth, the mother knows that a life will be born. She will have something from this pain. And therefore she can endure that pain. If you tell her beforehand, no pain but no child, she wouldn't accept it. She's ready to endure the pain because she knows she's going to have a life. And this pain that we're crying, we're not so much crying because we lost the Beis Hamikdash. As we say, in every generation that the Beis Hamikdash is not rebuilt as if it was destroyed, to be honest, we have to say, we're not crying for the destruction of the Beis Hamikdash. We are crying for the non-construction of the Beis Hamikdash. We should think that if the Beis Hamikdash is not built today, then on Shabbos Nachmu, that smell in the air of burning should be that smell of the Beis Hamikdash being destroyed in our generation. And we have to make sure that doesn't happen. In the past, let's be quickly, it's a little late, in the past we spoke of many different things a person can do to rebuild the Beis HaMikdash. Different meters that a person has to have. But very often somebody thinks, what am I supposed to do? I'm going to be better? So let's say I'm better. Let's say I become great. I become unbelievable. I become as great as Rechaim Kenievsky. Rechaim Kenievsky's Baruch Hashem is very great, and yet Mashiach is not here. So me becoming great, what, what, exactly, what exactly is that going to do? So we learned something else from the Meraglim, not just our Tishabov. The other Allah we learned from the Meraglim is the Allah of a minion. How do we know ten people come? The Kodesh comes, the Shekhinah comes to ten people. We learn it out from the Meraglim. The Meraglim are called an Eidah, and from them we learn out a minion. Imagine from the Meraglim we learn out the Kedusha of the Shekhinah coming. We also, the Gemara tells us, Midas Taiva, Meruba, Midas Hashem rewards 500 times better, 500 times more, 500 times quicker than he punishes. If 10 people can cause so much destruction, then imagine what good 10 people can do. Imagine how much Kedusha 10 people could create. Unless you think, well, you know, it sounds very nice, but we still have a lot to do. And to, you should know, the El Yazuta says as follows, in Perik Yudalid, Ein Yisrael Nigalin, Kaisel will not be redeemed, not because of pain, not because of subjugation, because of moving around, not because of the stress and the pain, not because they don't have food. So why will we, we be redeemed? There's going to be ten people, they're sitting next to each other, They'll be sitting together. If ten people can get together, and ten people can serve Hashem together, that itself is enough to go and to bring Mashiach. And a person should think, well, okay, and if it doesn't happen, eventually Mashiach will come, right? I read you a scary Chavetz Chaim. He says as follows, all you need is one kehila, one shul, one base medrash. If they are b'shalom together the way it's supposed to be, that one congregation could bring Mashiach. But if nobody does that, the biltum without it, the base will be destroyed forever. 
In other words, we won't get it until we manage to get together. So how do we get together? So in the next two minutes, I just want to give you something that I feel we can do. And that is, we have to make sure to love our fellow Yid. How do we make sure we love our fellow Yid? We have to have a self-check, something that we can check ourselves to make sure that we're doing it. What's a self-check? So I want to tell you two stories about two taxi rides in Eretz Yisrael. Now we know in Eretz Yisrael when you get in a taxi, it's not just a ride, it's an experience. It's an event. The taxi driver wants to know your name, where you're from, and then after that little information, the taxi driver will tell you how the government in Israel should be run, and if the Prime Minister would give him five minutes, he'll explain him everything, he'll arrange everything, and it's, it's, all, you know, it's, a, it's a therapy session. This guy gets, there's a guy, I'll tell you his real name, because in every city you have many, many of this name, so I don't mind, but it's his real name. His name is David Cohn. There was a fellow named David Cohn, and the story goes back, uh, whatever, quite a few years ago, about 25 years, 35, 35 years ago. He was in America, he was a wonderful person, a wonderful bacher, and he had high hopes, and all his friends were getting married, he wasn't getting married. He didn't know what was going on, he was a tremendous person. And one year passed, another year passed, and now already he was in his 30s and, and nothing was happening. He started to get a little depressed. He just said, you know, I'm going to go to Eretz Yisrael for a few months. He went to Eretz Yisrael for a few months and he was getting towards the end of his time in Eretz Yisrael. It was a fast day. He went to the Kaisel and he davened the Marv like he never davened before. He, it was, things weren't good for him. And he finished, he felt a little better. He started to walk towards the bus and he realized he's going back to an apartment that, that's empty. It's completely empty. And he again got very depressed. So he took a cab, got into the cab, and he starts to drive. The cab driver looks at him and says, What's your name? David Cohn. He goes, Why are you so sad? The fast is over. He's, he says he doesn't know, what got, doesn't know what got over him, but he spilled out everything. He told him his whole story, how he's been trying to get married, things don't look promising, and hey, he's in his 30s already, he doesn't know what's going to be. So the taxi driver looks at him and says, Really? He says, Yeah. The taxi driver starts to drive, he turns off the meter, and he starts to drive. So Dovah Kohn says, what's going on with the meter? I'm not paying you more, but... Quiet. We're going to Miron. We're going to Rajbi. We're going to Miron. So yeah, we're going to Miron, we're going to Davin. It's a night time, he starts to go on the highway, start to drive. After three minutes, Dovah Kohn looks at the taxi driver and says, you know, I told you my name is David Cohen. I can't go inside to Rajbi. So the taxi driver looks at him and says, all angry. He says, because you can't go inside in Davin, I can't go inside in Davin for you. You'll wait outside and Davin. I'm going to go inside and Davin for you. They drove two and a half hours to Shem Yechai. Goes inside, he Davins for about a half hour. Comes out. They start, there's always people available there in the middle of the night. And they start having a little dance, a little rikid. And they got back in a taxi and they're driving. And the whole way Dovah Kona is seeing this cab driver is nuts. They go, he drops them off to his, uh, his apartment and that's it. The next day, it was lunchtime, he went out for a falafel. And he met a friend of his and his wife... They were visiting Eretz Yisrael. He met them in the falafel shop, and they're talking. And his friend's wife read him a shidduch. And he says, you know, usually at this stage of the game, he checks out because he's so fed up with going out. He said, you know what? He said, yes. And he went out. And a few weeks later, they got engaged. The only problem now is he didn't know who this taxi driver was. That was, the, that was just, that's the guy made it happen. He needed the taxi driver. He tried to track him down. He couldn't find him. But he was amazed at the kindness. And he said, I'll never forget what this taxi driver did for me. That's one taxi story. There's another taxi story. There was a taxi driver driving, and a young lady gets in a taxi, and they're driving. He says, what's your name? He says, your name? He says, well, you look very happy. She goes, yeah, I'm a Kala. He says, you're a Kala. Very nice. Mia Khatan. Yeah, somebody from New York. Yeah, Mia Khatan. Who's it? He goes, 
David Cohn. The guy almost lost control of his car. David Cohn, Shali? My David Cohn, the one that. Turns out, that was that David Cohn. And that's how you explain this Israeli taxi driver by a chast in New York a few weeks later. When you hear such a story, what goes through your mind? Is it the Kayach Atfila, that somebody really believes he can go and daven for somebody else? Or is it the fact that somebody hears somebody else is in pain? And his first reaction is, I have to help him, he's my brother. This taxi driver drives a taxi for a living. He turned off the meter and he did such an outrageous thing because it's his brother. And that's the self-check we can do. When we hear something bad is going on with somebody else, do we say, Oy vey, can you please pass the ketchup? Or do we really go and do something? Because that's the only way this is going to happen. Shuttled back and forth to each side, trying to get them to give in. It was going on more than three generations, this fight. And finally, he went over to one of them, he says, I heard in the past three years, two of your sons died. He said, yes. He says, don't you realize that the punishment from Achleik, he says, your children will die? He says, so? The other guy's fault. He says, why don't you make up and your children won't die anymore? And he said, I don't care, I'll bury them all, but I'm going to win this Machlaikas. And he meant it. And he's right. He'll bury them all. Because he won't stop the Machlaikas. What this kin is telling us is that how important it is to stay away from Machlaikas. Because when someone's in Machlaikas, whether you're right or whether you're wrong, the children will be affected. Best of
next kina we'll be saying is kina chavav. It's a short kina with a lot of a message inside. This kina, Rav Lajar Kalir describes how frustrated Yirmiyahu Navi was because Yirmiyahu Navi spent forty years warning us about the Beis Hamikdash. Forty years he told us if we don't do tshuva, we're going to be kicked out of Eretz Yisrael. Yirmiyahu Navi was it was a bona fide Navi. There was no argument about that. And for 40 years he was telling us what's going to be. To our defense, we never experienced the destruction of the base of Migdash. It was a hard thing to imagine. But we all would like to believe that if God Adar would tell us something specifically is going to happen, we would do something. For 40 years, he told them. After that, eventually, it wasn't working so Hashem said, you know what? I want you to go, and I want you to write down as if the Churban already happened. Maybe that will make it more real. And therefore, He went and He wrote, Eicha, Perik Aleph, Perik Beis, Perik Gimel, of Eicha, was all written before it happened. Even though it's written as it happened, it was written before it happened. So people should get a, a realization that this is a real thing. And this took place 18 years before the Hurban. And yet, he was so despised that instead of just ignoring him, Melchi Hayakum, who was a king at the time, threw him in jail. He threw the Navi in jail. I guess the concept was that if you quiet the Navi, the Nebuah won't come true. But from jail, Hashem came to him and told to him that he should continue carrying out what he did. And therefore, he wrote the Nebuah and he sent it with his Talmud, Baruch ben Nesiyah, to give it to the king. And he comes to the king, the king was in his palace, and he says, I have a message for you. He goes, what's the message? And he starts to read from the beginning of Eicha. Eicha Yashav Adad. Look, your Shulayim sits by itself. And the Mela said, okay, as long as I'm still king, I don't mind. He said, Bocha Tifke, Belayla. She weeps bitterly in the night, referring to your Shulayim. And again, Yaakum says, I don't care as long as I'm king. And then it continues on. It says, Yehuda will be exiled. So what? As long as I stay king. All the roads will be filled with mourners leaving, being kicked out. I don't know, as long as I'm king. Then he says, He says that the, your, your nations, your enemies, they will be the head of you. They will be in charge of you. And in that, he said, that can't happen. He got up, he was enraged, and he took the Nebuah, he took the, the Megillah, and he threw it into the fire, where it burned. Of course, that doesn't stop the Nebuah. The Chidah tells us in a Sefer Nachal Eshkol, a tremendous thing. So Nebuchadnezzar was a childhood friend together with Yirmiyah Navi. And one time they were walking together, and Nebuchadnezzar says, you know, when I grow older... I'm going to destroy the base of Migdash. So really, why are you going to do that? Because, and I'm going to destroy Yerushalayim. What? Yeah, I'm going to do that. And I'm going to kill everyone there. So Yirmiyahu looks at him and says, could you do me a favor? He said, no. So what do you mean? I thought we're friends. He said, what do you want? He said, I want you to go and at least save the people. Don't kill the people. He said, no, 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 no. Base Migdash, Yerushalayim, the people, they're all gone. He said, I thought you were my friend. Do me one favor. He goes, okay, I'll give you one favor. What do you want? He says, something save. He goes, I'll tell you what. I'll tell you what I'll do for you. 
on the day I destroy the base of Mikdash, I'll give you 24 hours from sunset to sunset to save whatever you can save. Whatever you grab hold of, whatever you take, that you can save. Everything else is going to be destroyed. And the Rabbi says, okay, the Medrash tells us what happened was, Hashem went and He sent him to a city called Anasais to go there and give them Musr and Chizik. So he traveled to Anasais. And then on the way back, he's coming back towards Yerushalayim. And he sees the smoke coming up from the base of Middash. He says, wonderful, another day the Eden brought the carbon Tamid. As he got closer, he realized they weren't bringing the carbon Tamid. The base of Middash was in flames. And he realized that Hashem kept him out of Yerushalayim. So for those 24 hours, there's nothing he can save. And indeed, it was all destroyed. The Medrash tells us, how Yermio wanted to comfort the Eden when they were taken to captivity, and he saw the road covered with blood. So he followed the footsteps of the bloody footsteps until he catches up to them, and they were by the Narparas, by the Euphrates River. And he saw them, and he started to comfort them, and he says, "You see, you see the consequences of not living to the live, listening to the words of the Navi." And they cried, and he got up to leave. And they said, "Yermio, where are you going?" He said, "Going back to your shrine. There are people there." After comfort. He says, Yermio, don't leave us, don't leave us. And they started to cry. And Yermio looks at him and says, I swear to you, if you would have cried just one tear the past 40 years, this wouldn't have happened. But nobody cried even one tear. And now it's too late. And that's what means, Al-Nariz Bavel, Shom Yashav Nugam Bechinu. By Naris Bavel, that's where we cried. But beforehand, we didn't cry. Can you imagine the frustration that he had, telling everyone what's going to be, and yet... Nobody listened. The kid goes that after he's speaking to the children, to Klaisol to listen, they didn't listen. She starts to go to the Alvais. And he goes to Avram. He says, Avram, your children are going to be sent out. Do something. And he dabbles to Hashem. And he tells and he dabbles to Hashem, and Hashem says, What do you mean? Your children did a Vaidazara. And Yitzchak comes. And Yitzchak says, Is it for nothing that I went and allowed myself to be a carbon? And he says, oh, your children are doing a Vayda Zara. And he goes over to, to Yaakov. And Yaakov goes to Davin to Hashem. And the same thing. And he goes to Maisha. And nothing works. And then it says, Rachel came. And Rachel started to cry. And she's crying. She says, Hashem, what's the problem? And he says, what do you mean? They did a Vayda Zara. And Rachel says, they did a Vayda Zara. What do you mean they did a Vayda Zara? You mean they bowed down to, to silver and to gold and to rocks? And that's what you're jealous of? And says, Rachel, my sister stood to be embarrassed by the day of my chasna. And I wasn't jealous of my own sister. I was ready to give up. Yaakov for that. And you're jealous of rocks and stones? And Hashem hears the famous words, There'll be rewards still for yours. And they will return. And they went out to Gaulis, but at least we were guaranteed that we will return. There's a famous Maisa, we all know, with Rechaim Shulevitz, who used to go to different places, a very emotional person to Davin, and when he came to Kevarachal, he asked the driver, the Bachar, please wait outside. This happened a few times, so the Bachar said, if that's where I'm supposed to stay outside, that's probably where I'm supposed to go inside to listen. And he heard Rechaim Shulevitz Davining, and he was going through the different Saras that was going on. And when he finished, he started to say, Hashem, uh, Rachel, Hashem tells you not to cry. But I, Chaimel, I'm begging you to cry for us. Cry for your children. We need so much help. 
cry, cry for us. Vaint, mama, vaint. And he broke down crying, and he finished, and he left. On the way back, the Bokhar turns to Rosh Shiva, I have to apologize. I listened to what you're doing inside. So Chaim Shalavet smiles, says, okay. He says, I just have one question. He says, Hashem told Rachel not to cry. How could you go against that and say to Rachel to cry? He says, what do you mean? A parent knows what's going on. A parent sees what's going on. A child doesn't see. And therefore a parent will tell a child, it's okay, my kid, you don't have to cry, it's okay. But the child will look at the parent, the child doesn't understand what's going on, and the child will cry. Hashem can tell Rachel not to cry, because Hashem sees everything. But I'm the child. I can say, vaint, mama, vaint. I can cry to the mama Rachel. She should cry for us, because of all the tsars that we're going through. And that is what Rechaim Shalavet said. Because that crying of a child is very, very powerful. The Minchas loser before the war started, he had a base medish in Minkach. It was a very small base medish. If you've seen it, it's a, not such a big place. But he had a separate room he davened. He was a little older. And his grandson would oftentimes come and daven with him. And there came Elul. And his, after davening, the grandfather blew the shoifer. And his grandson was mesmerized by his grandfather blowing the shoifer. And he was so excited. He loved it. And every day he sees his grandfather blowing the shoifer. Sure enough, one day Davin's over, and his little grandson's waiting for him to blow Shafer. He doesn't blow Shafer. He says, Zaydi, why aren't you blowing Shafer? He tells him, well, it's Erev Rosh Hashanah. Erev Rosh Hashanah, we don't blow Shafer. Why not? He starts telling him the Yitzhar. He's a little kid, he didn't understand what he's talking about. Come on, Zaydi, blow Shafer. He says, no, we're not blow Shafer now. And he throws himself on the floor, and he's raised a tantrum, he's screaming and yelling, Zaydi, blow Shafer, blow Shafer. So he went and he blew Shafer for him. Next day, on Rosh Hashanah, in Davening, comes time for blowing Shafer, and he gets up to speak to the Eilam, and he says, I have to confess. He says, the Allah is not supposed to blow Shafer ever Rosh Hashanah. Rabbi Shalom, I blew Shafer. But you knew I wasn't going to blow. But what should I do? My little grandson was on the floor crying to me, Zayi, blow Shafer, blow Shafer. And I couldn't refuse him. So I blew Shafer. Then he told Eilam, he said, but we see from here, that a father, especially a grandfather, cannot go and refuse the cries of his children. If we were sitting on the floor now, if we would go and cry that same type of cry, HaKadosh Baruch wouldn't be able to hold back. And that's what we're meant to do by the Skinner. When we go and we say the Skinner, to realize what Yirmiyot was going through trying to convince us. But if we would go and we would have that cry, we wouldn't have the need for this anymore. All about that, me all, give me all voice.
next kin will be saying is Kinnul Amad Aleph. When we say it, we'll be standing and singing it together. The kin says, Eish Tukah Bekirbi, Ba'aleisi Alibi Bitsaisi Mitzrayim. How a, a fire of the Leishu was burning inside me when we left Mitzrayim. Kidim Ma'ira Laman Askira Bitsaisi Mitzrayim. And how much I cry when I remember what happened to me when we left Yerushalayim. This is a kinna, it's a study of contrast, which discusses the joy that we had and the, the simcha and the looking forward we had when we left Mitzrayim. We were on top of the world, getting the terror coming to Yerushalayim, leaving Mitzrayim, and then how low we were of what happened to us when we left Yerushalayim. And that's why, as we said before, the night of, Se- of the Pesach is the same night of Tishabov. Always falls out the same night. And again, because there's a contrast of B'tseisim Mitzrayim and B'tseisim Yerushalayim, how happy we were when we came to Eretz Yisrael, leaving Mitzrayim, and how sad we were. Until the end, we keep on saying that until finally at the end, we switch it, and we say, Sosim B'simcha, how great the joy will be finally when we return to Yerushalayim. <coughs> In 1492, when the Jews were exiled from Spain, really started in 1482 when they started the Inquisition with King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella to deal with the Jewish problem. And they figured out different ways to get rid of them and that's when they started the Inquisition. And then there were different people trying to stop them, and different appeals, but then ultimately, on March 31st, 1492, they said they have to leave. The Sonico fam- the Sonsino family, the well-known printing family, is very wealthy. They managed to bribe them, and they pushed it off for a short while. But ultimately, August 2nd, 1492, they had to leave or convert. Different numbers, some say 200,000, between 200 and 300,000 Jews were leaving. And that was on Tishab of August 2nd, 1492, as they were leaving. The Goyim were coming over and, and making fun of them, and some of them were trying to be quote-unquote nice. Are you sure you want to leave? Why don't you stay and just convert? No big deal, just stay. And others were saying, I'll give you $5 for your house. You want it? I'll give $4 for your house. At that point, the Barbanel was leaving with them, told them to start to play music. They said, play music, it's Tishabov. And he was scared that people will go and maybe they'll get convinced to stay if how, how sad the situation was. And then the Barbonel said, we should know that as sad as it is that we're leaving, a Jew doesn't cry when he's exiled from one place in Gullis to another place in Gullis. A Jew only cries when he's exiled from Eretz Yisrael. And therefore we don't cry. And that's why there's no kinna that talks about the exile from Spain because... Going from one place in Gaulus to another place in Gaulus, that's types of Gaulus. That's what Gaulus means. We only cry leaving Eretz Yisrael. And we look in the Kinnah, in the study of contrast with the different things, it tells us that in the Sefer Lechem Dima, who is a contemporary of the Rizal, says that in Mitzrayim it was so hard to work that the ladies would help their husband. And they would go and they would mix the mud together with the water. And the Mitzrayim went and they put in some thorns so it should be more painful and there was blood in there which made the bricks look brown to make it more painful the Nazis learned the same thing they would make bread 
with a mixture of water, flour, sawdust, and some shards of glass as well for good measure. They learned it from somewhere. And it says one time in Mitzrayim, while they were working, there was a lady, she was pregnant, but she couldn't stop. She had to help her husband. As she's working, she went into labor. She couldn't stop. The baby came out. And they had to continue working before they knew what happened. The baby was baked into the brick. Mal Gavriel came. He took that brick with the baby and he brought it up to Shemayim. He said, look what's happening to your people. And Kosh Baruch Hu took that brick and he placed it by his stone, by his, by his throne. And he kept it there. And any time Kosh Baruch Hu was angry with us, he would look at that brick with that child inside and his anger, Kaviyachu, would be tempered. And we came now to the Churban, as it says, Tashuk min Shemayim Eretz, the first Yisrael. He threw down from Shemayim towards the earth, Zachar Hadam. He did not remember, Ragla Biyayim Apay. He did not remember that brick that was by his feet. And Hashem threw that brick down, and that is how the Churban was able to go ahead. As we go through, we see what it was like, and what it became, what it became to us. But the Kajsh Magid says, we're not waiting for Mashiach like we wait for a bus. You know, you wait for a bus, you stand there and you wait. You're waiting, the bus will come. If you know the trick to make the bus come faster, right? You step onto the road to watch it and then maybe it comes faster. We're supposed to wait for the bus. That's not what it is waiting for Mashiach. We have a task to accomplish. We have to go and do something to change B'tseisim Yimitzrayim and B'tseisim Yerushalayim. We have to change B'tseisim Yerushalayim into V'shuvul Yerushalayim, to return. What do we have to do? And the Kajdamagid would say that Kajdamagid, you can't get, just so you can't go to a king. If you're a regular person, you can't get into the king. If you're a governor, you can get into the king. When could a regular person see the king? Every once in a while, the king goes to visit. He's traveling along the road. You can stand aside the, uh, alongside the road and you can yell out something. Maybe the king will hear you. And it's the same thing when a Kajdamagid is exiled from the base of Migdash. He's among us. That is when we can go and get closer to Kaddish Baruch Hu. We have things that we need to do. And sometimes we get involved in issues and we think, oh, let's just get this done. As we said many times, there's one word Hashem never says. And that word is, oops. Hashem never says, oh no, I can't believe I just did that. That doesn't happen. Everything is done exactly with Efezman. The Magidim say over a marshal, there's a fellow who called Chaim. Chaim lived in a farmhouse and one day he's walking out of his farmhouse to go to work and he has his utensils with him and all of a sudden he hears a big sound he goes, Chaim! He looks up, who's that? It's me, Hashem. Hashem. Uh, uh, Hineni. Yes, uh, what can I do? He says, Chaim, I have uh, something special for you. Yeah, what is it? You ready to do what it takes? Abs- whatever, Hashem, of course. You see the big rock in front of your house? He goes, yeah. He goes, I want you to go over to that rock and I want you to push it. So Chaim looks at the rock, 15 feet wide, 10 feet tall. He says, Shem, I, I thought you said I should push the rock. Chaim, go push the rock with all your might for 15 minutes. Okay, so Chaim goes over, he starts pushing and pushing for 15 minutes, he's pushing. When he finishes, a bastel comes out, Chaim, that was wonderful. And Chaim goes to work. Comes out the next day and he's walking and then a bastel, Chaim, yes. Yes, Hashem, what can I do for you today? Chaim, I want you to go push that stone again for 15 minutes. Okay. And he pushed it with all his might. And when he finishes, Hashem says, Chaim, 
I want you to do that for me every day. I want you to push that rock. Can you do that? Of course. With your heart, hardest, okay. And every day, Chaim would come out and he would go and he would push the rock as hard as he can. Sometimes a little harder, sometimes not. Sometimes he would walk by, almost forgot oh, the rock. He'd go back and start pushing the rock. After a few months, he's walking over to the rock and he gets a tap on his shoulder. Chaim turns around and he's this big, ugly, burly fellow. He goes, who are you? How do you know my name? He goes, I am the Yitzhahara. Oh, what do you want from me? Nothing. I just want to thank you. You want to thank me? He goes, yeah. For what? He says, you know, Chaim, we work very hard. Me and my colleagues, we work very hard. And then comes Sunday, we work even harder. Benazmanim, even harder. We complain. Hashem, it's too hard. We work so hard the whole day. So Hashem said, what do you want? He goes, we want a half hour break. Okay, so we get a half hour break. But then we got bored. So Hashem arranged some entertainment for us. Chaim, you're that entertainment. You see, every day, we come, we gather around, we watch you, like a fool, going and pushing this 15 foot wide by 10 foot high rock, and you're pushing and you're pushing and you're pushing, and we're laughing away. Chaim, there's not a chance in the world you're going to move that stone. And yet, for months, you're pushing it, pushing it, like I'm sure you're going to, and we really, really enjoy it. So Chaim, on behalf of me and my colleagues, we'd like to thank you. Chaim hears this, he's devastated. He says, on the punchline of a joke? That's what's going on. And for months, I'm pushing, I'm pushing this rock on the punchline of a joke. I'm not pushing a stone today. And he walks off to work. Goes home. Next day he comes out. He remembers, oh, the stone, not pushing it. Chaim! Basco comes out. What? Why aren't you pushing the stone? Because Hashem, you take me for a fool? You're telling me to go and to push the stone? You know there's no way in the world like, I can't move the stone a half a millimeter. How in the world could I go and move the stone? Why are you telling me to move the stone when there's no way I can move the stone? And Hashem says, Chaim, I told you to move the stone? I never told you to move the stone. Chaim, I told you to push the stone. You push the stone, you leave the moving up to me. Chaim, here's this. He goes, oh my gosh, he's right. He never told me to. Hashem told me to put. Okay, I'm sorry. And he goes and he starts to push the stone. He goes off, pushes a stone, and he goes off to work. He comes home that day, and he hears screaming and screaming behind his house. He goes running there, and his wife goes running out. He goes, Chaim, help! The baby's under the wagon, getting crushed by the wagon. Help! He runs to the back. He sees his little baby under the wagon. He says, okay, I'm going to go to town. We're getting a few people. We're going to come back. I'll get five, six, five. We'll pick up the wagon. She says, you can't run to town. By the time you come back, it's over. He doesn't want to do. He runs over and he lifts up the wagon. She pulls the baby out and the wagon falls down. They save their baby. She looks at her husband. She goes, wow, where did you get that strength from? And Chaim said, I guess I've been practicing for the past year, building up my muscles for that. And indeed he realized that pushing that stone is what gave him the muscles, the ability to lift up that wagon. And that's the same thing that happens to us. Because goes and presents us with an issue. So what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to daven. So we start to daven and we're all into it for a week or two and, and nothing happens. And then the HR comes and says, you're davening? Nothing's happening. You think your daven is going to do something? Do something constructive. There's no way you're going to accomplish that by davening. That's the HR talking. Because we realize that a Baruch doesn't do anything to us just to do to us. Or we don't find ourselves in a situation just so we should get out of it. If a Baruch puts us somewhere, it's so we are supposed to do something to get out of it. And as we go through this kinnis, 
And we go through each one. It talks about the beautiful things that happened to us when we left Mitzrayim, from the Yamsuf, from the Mon, from Kabbalah Satara, to the terrible things that happened to us when we left Mitzrayim. When we left Yerushalayim, Mitzrayim, Yerushalayim, we should know that it's up to us to switch Mitzrayim, Yerushalayim, to Bishuvi Yerushalayim. We're all going to stand now, and we're going to sing H2 Kad. Yerushalayim, <laughs> Zedonim shatafu varoshi tzafu b'tzeisim Yerushalayim Degan shamayim itzor yozuvu mayim b'tzeisim imitrayim La'ana umro yirimu mayim hamorim b'tzeisim Yerushalayim Hashkem v'harev sevivoy sarchoyrev b'tzeisim imitrayim Unless somebody think, that's not me, you know, I'm not on the radar screen, I'm, if Hashem would not, what I did last week, Hashem's not interested in me. And what I did two weeks ago, and what I saw three weeks ago, and what I, where I went, Hashem is not interested in me. You should know that's Yitzhara talking. It says at the end of Shema, we remember Yitzhara Mitzrayim. Every day, twice a day, we, end up, we remember Yitzhara Mitzrayim. Why Yitzhara Mitzrayim? Why not the Mon? Why not Kabbalah Satira? Why not all the other miracles that happened? So obviously, nothing would happen without Yitzhara Mitzrayim. But the B'nai Yitzhara says, because we have to remember that we were in the lowest of the low. Memtash Shari Tumah. And a few days later, we were by Kabbalah Satira. That is something we have to remember. No matter as low we go, we can always rise. I just want to end with this thing. There was a girl in a high school named Rivka who was having a very difficult time. It was the day before Hanukkah vacation and the principal was speaking to the whole school. And she was speaking to them about Hanukkah, etc. And she said, anybody know how high you can lay the Menorah? And the, all the girls raised their hand, yeah, 20 amas. Wow, very good. Does anybody here know how low you're allowed to light a Menorah? And no one knew. She says, nobody knows, nobody knows. 300 girls in the room, nobody knew. Also, one girl raised her hand. It was Rivka. It was that one girl always caused issues. And the principal said, I don't want to call on her because she's going to make a joke about the whole thing. But she was the only one to raise her hand. So I called on her. I said, yes, Rivka. And she said, three tvachim. I said, amazing. I said, girls, Rivka's right. Three tvachim. Beautiful. The, it was over. The talk was over. Everybody walks out. And she says, Rivka, could you come here a second? Can I talk to you? She comes over. She goes, Rivka, it's beautiful. How did you know that? No one else knew it. She was quiet. She goes, Rivka, tell me, how did you know? She goes, you really want to know? She goes, yes. 
says, you remember last year, I, I, I had some issues during the year? And the princess says, yes, I remember. She says, do you remember that one thing that you felt the need to expel me and to suspend me for a month? She says, yes. She says, well, after I left your office, I went to the classroom, I was told to get my stuff and leave. So I went to my classroom, I got my stuff from my locker, while everyone was watching, and I walked out the classroom and I slammed the door shut and I was leaving. A moment later, the door opens up and my teacher comes out. She goes, Rivka, could you wait a moment? I looked around, I said, what? What do you want? I said, can I speak to you for a moment? So I had no choice. I said, what do you want? She goes, Rivka, do you know how high you could light a menorah? It was Hanukkah time. I said, no, and I don't really care. She says, 20 amas high. I said, okay, thank you. No, Rivka, do you know how low you could light a menorah? No, and I don't really care. Rivka, you could light a menorah three tefachim off the ground. Okay, thank you. Rivka. And she put her hand on my shoulder and said, Rivka, I want you to know, you're in a very low spot right now. But I want you to know, even somebody who's very, very low, could still connect to Hashem. Someone who's very, very low could still light a fire to Hashem. Someone who's very, very low could still be precious to Hashem. And I want you to remember that. And she turned to her principal and said, that's one lesson that I'll never forget. And that's the same reason why we have to remember about that by Jesus trying twice a day, never to think that we're too far, that Hashem is not eagerly waiting for us to come back. We've been sitting on the floor the whole morning. Now we're going to get up. We have to make sure that we get up, we rise up, and we continue rising until finally we can bring Mashiach. Amen. Amen. Alleluia, <laughs> 
You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.